putting on my top hat, tying up my white tie, brushing off my tails. Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss every year of film history in order, starting in 1895, the dawn of cinema, and we've made it all the way up to 1935. That's this week. I am one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Cobell. I'm a filmmaker. We're halfway through the 30s, baby. Yeah. We're what? This is the 40th year we've covered? Oh. Am I doing my math correctly? Uh, might be. I'm not a math guy. I don't 1895 know. to 1935? I am so bad at math. <laughs> that's, that's really all <laughs> that you could take away here. Yeah. Uh, well, so, um, yeah, we're a podcast about old movies. Uh, we listen, we, we watch them all. So you, so you don't have to. No, you should also watch them though, because they're, well, some of them are good. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, uh, we watch a lot of movies and you definitely don't have to watch all of them because that would be, uh, crazy. But you don't uh, have to do anything. You do whatever you want. Yes. Is what I say. But as long as it is legal and moral. Glenn, uh, uh, you do what I want and, and read the news now. <laughs> okay. Very good. The news of the year, 1935. It's the best thing since bottled beer. The first canned beer is sold. After stealing the concept from Lizzie Maggie and making a version with the opposite political message of the original, Parker Brothers begin selling the board game Monopoly. In violation of the Treaty of Versailles, Adolf Hitler rearms the German military and begins conscription to the Wehrmacht. Reza Shah renames Persia to Iran. 300,000 tons of dust bowl topsoil are lifted into the air by a severe dust storm, Black Sunday. Japanese-occupied Korea, Sun Myung Moon claims to be the next prophet after Jesus and becomes the figurehead of the Mooney Christian sect. Joseph Stalin cuts the opening ribbons on the first subway line in the Soviet Union. As part of the New Deal fighting against the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Social Security Act into law. Within ten days, new land and airspeed records are set at 301 and 352 miles per hour, respectively. The Nazis' evil plot move forward as they pass the Nuremberg Laws, which revoke Jewish citizenship. Berliner Regina Jonas becomes the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi. 20th Century Pictures and Fox Film Corporation merge into 20th Century Fox. For your consideration, the first advertisement for an Academy Award appears in trade magazines. And that is some of the news of 1935. Yeah. We cut out some of the darker stuff. (laughs) (laughs) As we do almost every time. Just like, ugh, too much of a bummer. Yeah, the person who was ordained as a rabbi in Berlin, uh, not not good things happened to her, um, actually. Well, uh, we touch on that in the other news segments. Oh, just the Nazis? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we're going to talk more about them. Uh, yeah, uh, but first, uh, we'll, we'll, st- we'll start with Nazis. We'll get the Nazis out of the way first, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's do Mickey Mouse. We'll, we'll, do yeah. a, we'll do a Mickey Mouse Nazis uh frankenstein sandwich <laughs> <laughs> uh a, se- a sentence that has never before been spoken breaking new ground on one week one year <laughs> let's get into one week one reel yeah do some shorts more cartoons because those are kind of the usually the most notable shorts that are happening around yeah this and time. also i want to watch cartoons and i don't True. i don't want to watch yeah. not cartoons <laughs> it feels very kind of classic 
old Hollywood to be like, we're going to, cause I, I did a, a sort of like, I'd watch a cartoon and then watch one of the movies and like, I didn't watch them both at once. I tried to pair them mm-hmm. with, with different movies. Oh, what'd you pair them with? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's start with Mickey Mouse, as we said, which is, uh, the band concert. Mm-hmm. It's the first Mickey Mouse cartoon that is in color. And not just any color, but three strip technical, three whole colors in this thing. Three whole strips, three whole colors. Yeah. And yeah, this is very bright and colorful and nice. Uh, we've seen earlier Disney three strip joints with the, 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 the talking tree one. The, the Yes. The dancing tree one. Flowers and trees. The Disney short from a couple of years ago uh, that began an exclusive deal that they had to have access to three strip Technicolor with animation. They had only done it in their Silly Symphonies series originally, and this is the first Mickey Mouse. So we get to Mm. see those bright red shorts, the iconic bright (laughs) red shorts that everybody's been talking about lately. Yeah. And and are not yet in the public domain. They won't be until 2035? No. Sooner than that. But, yeah, um, sooner than that. Because it's a 95-year thing right yeah. now. Yeah. It's very vibrant. Like, the colors in this are very striking, as I think most early Technicolor things are. Yeah, it looks great. The restoration and new scan, or whatever you would call it, on, on Disney+, mm-hmm. Plus looks beautiful. Yeah. 1935 was also the first, first, in quotes, uh, three-strip Technicolor feature film, mm-hmm. but we did not watch it. Because it didn't seem that interesting other than that little factoid. Mickey Mouse is a, a conductor and their Donald Duck tries to join the band and no one likes him. So they have a fight and then there's a tornado. That's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that this was in the great pantheon of conductor based humor in animation. Mm. Uh, we sort, had of, the... sort of more like Mickey Maestro. Oh, snubbed for the golden globe <laughs> mickey maestro <laughs> ah it's a stack here we have barbie we have oppenheimer we have barbie yeah. in the the they, most outstanding in, achievement in the field of it, regular movie <laughs> in the in the field of making money yeah <laughs> what is this barbie and oppenheimer you speak of we're in the year 1935 glenn <laughs> Oppenheimer, isn't he that, like, Berkeley professor? (laughs) All right, let's get back to the mouse. Uh, I have a friend named Barbara. (laughs) Barbara and Oppenheimer. Go to Vista Del Mar. (laughs) I'd watch that. (laughs) Yeah, this is um, a a la Tom from Tom and Jerry and Bugs from Bugs and Bunny. We have another... Bugs and Bunny? That's, that's, uh, That's his name, right? Bugs and Bunny? Yeah, the the two characters, Bugs and Bunny. <laughs> uh, we have some conductor based humor, which is which is basically like you move the stick really fast because there's a bee in your way, and then everybody starts playing really <laughs> fast. Melted ice cream in your jacket. That was good. That was a good joke. That was a uh, yeah. That was a laugh out loud moment for me because I think Donald throws ice cream at Mickey. And then it passes Mickey, it goes into somebody's, like, tuba, and then the tuba player spits it back out of the tuba, <laughs> and then it goes down Mickey Mouse's back, and it's this really good animation of him just being like, ugh, ugh. 
At first, I thought, is this the first Donald Duck appearance? It's not. But in, like, trying to read about early Donald Duck, it seems like a lot of early animated shorts kind of present the Donald Duck as almost like a, a foil to Mickey Mouse. Hmm. Like a, an antagonist almost, which he kind of is in this. Yeah. But I don't really understand why no one likes Donald, other than he has kind of an annoying voice. It's like, he's very good at playing the flute. I don't know why everyone's just, he's like, you're not part of the band. Get out of here. playing a different song than they're trying to play? Like, over their song, and that's why Mickey's getting mad? I don't know. Maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I missed the point of the entire <laughs> thing. But I was sort of like, let him in. He's good at it. Yeah, let let off-model Donald in. Yeah. The thing I would noticed about this is I feel like as animation is, like, developing and, like, kind of getting more streamlined, it does feel like it's it's losing a little bit of that, like, wacky cartoon reality from, like, really early animation. Like from Steamboat Willie, mm. where it's like anything is anything. Any object is also a person and can talk and or like some of that like fluidity of reality, I feel like is is starting to go away a little bit. Maybe I'd like to see how some Fleischer stuff from an, around now mm. compares, because, yeah, I think this Disney stuff is very smooth. It's less surreal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of finding its way into the Disney that we know. You know, we just saw Popeye, and it seems like the Fleischer brothers are doing stuff that's a bit more, a bit more zany, mm. right? Mm-hmm. At least until they get to their rotoscoped Superman era. Where, <laughs> but I'm so excited! I've seen some of those, and they're so cool. Yeah, there is some really impressive animation in this, though. In particular, like I'm not an animator or an artist, but my understanding is that. When you're doing 2D animation, making things rotate is Mm. one of the more difficult things to do. And the entire end of this is the is the the band all spinning around in circles inside of a a tornado that picks them up. Yeah, it looks it looks really nice. Because I almost feel like I see more of that in this like early animation than in sort of like 50s cartoons, which is probably most of what I've seen is like 50s, 60s stuff. Like Disney and Warner Brothers animation. And Hanna-Barbera, which are known for their... Cheapness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it does kind of feel like a lot of these early, like, Disney and Fleischer Brothers stuff is, like, showing off a bit of, like, look at what we can do. Yeah. Which is I mean, cool to see. This is an era of a lot of excess in terms of set design and scope mm. of giant, uh, of live action movies. And I think this is an era where the animation people are really just trying to push themselves to do really impressive stuff and go as hard as they can, basically. Yeah. There was a bit towards the end where the the chairs they're sitting on start running. And that that made me happy. I was like, okay, there's still there's still some good silliness here of the chairs being alive. Yeah. Have we have we watched any Mickey Mouse since Steamboat Willie? I don't think we Mm -mm. have. I don't think so. And, you know, after Steamboat Willie, there was more or less like a Mickey fever. He was extremely popular. And Mm. I think this short that we're seeing, which is seven years later, uh, we have missed seven years of Mickey Mouse. uh, But he's already become somewhat of the more bland Mickey that we're used to. Right. He doesn't doesn't have quite that mean edge that he does in Steamboat Willie. Yeah. (laughs) He still loves playing music, though. Just in, he, he at least, he's moved on from, uh, animals to actual instruments. So that's, that's a nice change. So, so much of this early cartoon stuff is music based. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's all about the novelty of sound in many ways. And so it's like, look, we're going to play a song. We're going to conduct a song. We're going to sing a song. All that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Speaking of cartoon music. Yeah. We also watched a Warner Brothers short called I Haven't Got a Hat. This is the first Porky Pig appearance. Yes. Uh, This is um, Merry Melodies, I believe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Looney Tunes was black and white up until the 40s. But Merry Melodies was doing occasional color uh, shorts. And this one is a two-strip Technicolor because Mm -hmm. Disney had exclusive license to three-strip. Those bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so it's, it's cool seeing this style in two strip yeah yeah it is um it's just this did feel a little bit like the animation is maybe a little bit less like slick than the disney one it's rougher certainly yeah um but still like very sort of like 1930s style of like rubber hose arms and that sort of thing the sort of very bare bones plot of this one is there's a re- uh, a recital at the animal school and Porky Pig, uh, famously good at public speaking, has to uh, <laughs> recite a little speech. <laughs> yeah, this is um, kind of a not fully formed Porky here. Uh, of course, he looks different than what mm-hmm. we're used to in his first in his first short, but he also. His bit is just that he stutters and not that he stutters and then changes what he's saying. Right. Which didn't. Am I thinking of something else or did that happen? That was in Broadway Melody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That exact bit. Yes. It seems like maybe, you know, as with a lot of comedy things that seem to just exist in the air, maybe it's like a vaudeville type. It's almost definitely a vaudeville. That seems like (laughs) such a vaudeville thing. Another funny thing about this is like Porky Pig is like, oh, Porky Pig, classic Warner Brothers character. But then there's a bunch of other anthropomorphic animals that I'm like, never heard of this guy. Oliver Owl? Beans the Cat? (laughs) I'm like, what happened to all these people? I mean, uh, around this era, Beans the Cat was their flagship guy. There you go. I'd never heard of Beans the Cat. I do think it's funny that when they show Porky Pig sitting in class reading, he's reading Custer's Last Stand. So it's a weird choice. I'm not really sure what the joke is there. <laughs> like, is that just a joke that it's like, why would he be reading this? Or is that like some reference? To, I don't know. I Overall, I think I actually found this one funnier than the Mickey Mouse one. Like the jokes were better. Yeah. There's a great, there's a, a turtle playing his shell as drums, which is great. There's um, a very shy, I think, uh, cat or mouse who's trying to recite Mary Had a Little Lamb and keeps <laughs> looking over to the teacher to get hints. <laughs> and uh, that leads to some really good good bits. It's um, just, a cat, yeah. A cat and a dog have a fight inside of a piano, and it, like the because they're fighting, the piano starts playing a tune, and it's like a better tune than the piano player was playing. That's, uh, that's Oliver Owl playing the piano, and, and mm. Beans put the non-anthropomorphic cat Pick the, right. the anthropomorphic <laughs> cat picked up the non-anthropomorphic cat and put it inside of the piano. Yep. Uh, to try and mess with Oliver Owl because they're rivals. Yeah. But see, then at the end, like, all right, the end of a Merry Melodies cartoon, Porky Pig's in here. 
And then a jester comes out and says, that's all, folks. We get it, that's all, folks, but it's not Porky. It's, well, I mean, this is his first movie. He hadn't got the gig yet. I <laughs> he, guess that comes later. the job of that jester. Yeah, I'm like, who is this jester now? The unsung jester of early Warner Brothers animation. <sighs> Tomb of the unsung jester. <laughs> <laughs> As part of this uh, this uh, petty rivalry between Beans and Oliver Owl, so they they end up like kind of throwing ink and paint on each other, uh, mm. and they are green ink and red paint, which are the only two bright colors that they can make really uh, right. in uh, in this two strip world. It really emphasizes the two strip nature of it because like those are the two colors. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's some good. It's some good gags. It's definitely more. It feels more amateurishly made than the Disney thing. The Disney thing is like polished. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I, I yeah, I felt like kind of the 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 humor felt a little bit stronger in in this one. Yeah. Um, to me, the, anyway. this is not Mel Blank playing Porky. Uh, mm. It's someone named Joe Daughtry, uh, who they cast because. Specifically because he had an actual stutter and he had to stop playing Porky mm. at some point because his stutter got oh, wow. unmanageable. And Dang. then he was recast with Mel That's Blank. That's rough that it's like you're cast for your specific manner of speaking and yeah. then they're like, never mind, it's too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure exactly like whether it was him or them that cut it off, but, but yeah. yeah. Wow. But yeah, he's he's... Just doing his thing, I guess. God, mm. he's just doing his thing instead of like instead of doing a bit the way that mm-hmm. Mel Blanc does it. Yeah. Well, shall we get to our feature presentation? Let's get so excited. Let's get to our feature presentation. <laughs> and now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. So we're we're jumping right in the deep end, huh? Yeah. Let's let's do it. Yeah, let's, great. Let's, uh, let's 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 jam with some some Nazi stuff over here. I mean, it's 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 topical. It's timely for I mean for then, but I mean it's kind of for now too. <laughs> uh, this is Triumph of the Will. Yep, the famous, the famous Triumph of the, the Will, the infamous, true propaganda slash doc- documentary in quotes, docaganda. Yes. Dokaganda, I guess. That is probably maybe the best word for it. Directed by Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah. Who, I think, I mean, she had directed movies before this, but was mostly an actor. Yeah. Previously, I thought. She'd also directed Nazi movies, like Nazi propaganda movies before this as well. But yeah, she was big Nazi lover. Certainly, and you can see that on the screen. Oh, <laughs> oh, can you? This is another one of those movies like Birth of a Nation that I've heard a lot of people say, like, it's horrible, but you have to, the, the, what it's doing is terrible, but you have to respect certain aspects of it. I will say, in comparison to The Birth of a Nation, which I thought is is very notable for like the effect it had on culture, but like as a movie and like from its technical perspective, it wasn't that far off from like other D.W. Griffith movies that he'd already made or made around the same time. Yeah, it's a, it's a more Whereas, excruciating D.W. Griffith right, movie. Right, it's just like it's usual. just like right, it's just kind of like more hateful than the rest of his movies. 
But this, at at least, this does have a sort of real kind of, like, technical, I don't know, panache to it. Like, this is a a well-made piece of propaganda. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think I I took, in in the 1915 episode, I took delight in knocking down Birth of a Nation as an actually bad movie. Not so good. This movie, this movie is not, it's not a bad movie and well, like the shots it, are well yeah it's a little long-winded i'll say that much. <laughs> yeah the, you can kind of tune a lot of it out the things that people say you got you hate it but you got to respect it for birth of a nation it's like you don't actually have to respect it like it didn't actually do right. that stuff yeah. that yeah. that history says that it did this other, other than the sort of like cultural impact that it had which is real also but yes. also makes it worse like yeah it was a very negative cultural impact. This movie, I think the reasons why people bring it up as worth looking at, influential, as a, valuable. An, an, import, an important piece of cinema. Right. It, it, they are, I think they had, they're onto something a bit more with this movie. Yeah, it feels a bit more valid, kind of. Uh, of course, it is still a Nazi film. And I think also a lot of what people take away from this movie is less the filmmaking and more the blocking of the parade, basically. Yeah, uh, it's it's a movie that does a very good job of capturing very good architecture and blocking. It looks really good. Like it's it's very well shot and it's very well edited, for the most part. I think it again. It, I think it is too long and is very like redundant at at times. Yeah. Where it's like we get it. It's a parade. I, I've seen it. a lot of you Nazis marching. <laughs> like, I don't need to see a thousand more marching shots. Yeah. But in terms of, like, here's, like, a great shot of, like, big old flags. Great shot of flags. Yeah. I'll, like, I'll, I'll give you that much. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? It's like, these are giant flags. Specifically, you know, they, they made big flags, and the big flags are impressive. And then they just shot them, right? Right. I watched Dan Olson's video on on Triumph of the Will. Oh, uh, breaking, I, I, ha- bre- I have not breaking I down the that. editing and everything like that. And he said that he says it's less of a triumph of filmmaking and more of budget and scale. Mm. Right. Where this is a movie that was commissioned by the Nazis to make themselves look cool, and they spent hideous amounts of money on it. <laughs> To make themselves look really cool. So there are... This movie is full of shots of enormous crowds of Nazi lovers. They they love their crowd size. Obsessed with it. And it's trying to show, you know, how much support they have. Right? Because they're only just seizing power now. And there's probably a lot of people who are not feeling so good about the Nazis. Yeah. So... Ostensibly, this movie is documenting a, what, four-day rally, basically, in Nuremberg, Mm -hmm. which seems like a bunch of speeches and a bunch of parades. I think they call it Party Day, which is rich. Not that kind of party. (laughs) Um, It's, I think it's like the party, because that's, that's what Nazis actually called themselves. Nazi is inherently kind of a mocking and derogatory term. Did you know about this? Uh, maybe. Sounds kind of familiar. 
I read up on it again uh, after watching this because I wanted to like fact check myself on that kind of. There is a uh, a Twitter thread and later a Substack article by uh, uh, an author, Rebecca Mackay. I hope I'm saying her name correctly about how the word Nazi began as like an insult against them. <laughs> like it was in Germany, it was kind of shortened nickname for uh, Ignaz. And then that name was sort of like used as a, an insult for like calling someone like a country bumpkin or like a red, like a the German equivalent of like a redneck. It's like calling someone Cletus. It's crazy the, and Ignatz, the uh, the comic strip characters, also yeah, maybe. That's the example that this art article uh, uses. Is like, it's as if there was a political party that everyone called Cletuses in <laughs> in the United States, huh? And that's just what everyone calls them now. Even like neo Nazis call themselves that, right. and it's like, but it started as this like you dumb idiots. <laughs> Which well, I think is is very funny that that that's just what the word everyone uses now is this like kind of mean nickname. I mean, isn't that kind of just like the thing that they do though? Fascists and Nazis in particular, they take other people's imagery and then claim it as their own. Right? True, swastika, great example. Yeah, the 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 fascist way is to make it seem like all culture is about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I it's I think it's kind of interesting to like go back to like 1930s and 40s things and like see how it's like that they don't call themselves Nazis. That's just what what we do now. Hmm. There's no real like narrative to this. It's 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 mostly just like here's a bunch of speeches, here's a bunch of par- more flags, more more parades. Yeah, it's it's showing a grueling four days of <laughs> Nazis Hang it, not even hanging out, like Nazis standing in very ordered rows listening to yeah. Hitler give a speech. Very orderly rows. It, it does have this sort of obsession with orderliness, which is maybe extends mm. to the, the Nazis in general. It's showing them as like imposing and, and having discipline and all this kind of stuff where you're seeing these shots of either soldiers or even just regular people all standing in like perfect rows, perfect distances from each other. And it's mm-hmm. you're in the camera, you're seeing 40,000 people doing this. Right. And just thinking like, what if one of them has to go to the bathroom? You know, yeah. <laughs> like they, they don't get to No, <laughs> they're, they're Nazis. They don't, they don't get to use the bathroom whenever <laughs> no hall pass for Nazis. Yeah. There is this kind of like the movie opens with, like Hitler flying in and the plane landing and like the crowd going wild and him like on a like motorcade through through Nuremberg. And there is this kind of like real really like playing up like the celebrity of it, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, just it's it's odd to see of just like, here's the the worst person who ever lived and kind of like the the presumably genuine uh sort of like celebrity that he held in at least parts of Germany in 1934. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's like, it's because the, the imagery is so celebratory and yet it's celebrating this thing that is like, I have to have such a like visceral gut reaction to it. Like, no, this is bad. Mm -hmm. It, it, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. (laughs) Well, the movie, it's weird to see. 
the movie does a lot to make it seem like the Nazis are not what they are, right? It's it's only very infrequently when they even mention race in this movie. But when they mention it, it's mentioned in a very pointed way. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I think this movie is trying to, like, sanitize Nazis a little bit. Yes, it does and feel that way. It's it's trying to present them as non, non-threatening. Like, they're in a lot of the Hitler speeches in it. He talks about how they don't want war, they want peace. Like, right, right I, believe he's, I believe Poland. he says, he, he believes says, the guarantor of peace, to which I say, my ass. <laughs> Hitler. So, so you know, along the, the lines of it being propaganda, it is lying to you actively. Yes. Uh, not not yeah. even just in in its glorification of Nazis, but even in its portrayal of what a Nazi is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, I believe, only two mentions of sort of race in the whole thing, but they are both in a very kind of like, we gotta keep, we gotta keep it pure kind of thing like it's 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 mentioned in a very nazi-ish way yeah and then throughout the whole thing there's like lots of just like lovingly composed shots of blonde people little baby nazis there's a baby that so many kids in this which is also like upsetting for many reasons one just of the whole way that like nazis were very like focused on indoctrinating children and like they were very like children of the future kind of but in a in the worst possible way, right? I mean, there's a whole section that shows the the Hitler Youth, and it uh, it almost evokes Kino Eye in a way, as like here are the young people who are very yeah. uh, <laughs> very on board for what the government is doing. There's there's a definite kind of like Soviet film school influence on this, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like watching all the the footage of like I don't know, like twelve year old kids in this it's like how many of these kids died in world war ii that was 10 years after this like as soldiers right right? like they were all they all like got on board like hey there's a parade let's go join up yeah and then it's like and then they all you know froze to death in russia (laughs) i mean i'm less concerned about them than the people no true like (laughs) absolutely but it is it's like there's kind of this weird thing where you see all these kind of like you know, fresh-faced kids who are just kind of like, uh, yeah. Obviously, I'm not. I don't have. They're as being indoctrinated. Sympathy, sympathy right. for them as the kids who were just murdered, but it is. Yeah, there's something kind of upsetting about that, also. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you were speaking earlier about how they treat him like a celebrity, and mm-hmm. to me, it almost seemed like they were treating him like a king, right? Where, yeah. like, yeah. I can't, like, I can't believe, like his grace has touched me, you know, <laughs> or I can, I can see him or whatever. And like, I think it maybe st- while I was watching this movie, a lot of what I was thinking about was like, what is going on in the minds of these average Nazis who like these average Germans who are like, Oh my God, I like, I'm so ready to welcome Hitler to my, to my town. And I'm so excited to see Hitler. Like, like what, What's the appeal to them, you know? <laughs> right. Which is, I mean, I can re- I can relate that feeling to watching certain political rallies that are happening this year in the the year 2024. I've like I don't get what 
the appeal is like why do why listen to this windbag there's there's a whole section in triumph of the will about where it's like he's speaking to the kind of like the the farming communities and like the the laborers and he's like ah the workers we love you you're you're gonna make this a great a great nation and i'm like why why are the blue collar laborers like into this like this is so he's such a kind of antithetical to what you think their values would be um well i mean they called hey, themselves their flags na- are real big i mean they called themselves national socialists because you could national not- socialist workers like yeah. that's part of the name yeah because like you couldn't be elected in germany it was what i heard what i what i understand is that like you couldn't be elected in germany unless you signaled that you were socialist in some way mm. right and so they just lied they just called themselves something that they weren't uh, yeah. to get the support of farmers and whoever else i think it's like they used the word national to appeal to like right wing and then socialist to appeal to left wing and they were just like let's let's just get everybody on board it's a, big, um, a big tent party. Yeah. Oof. Very few tents. No shade in this movie. There's an indoor hall where there's a lot of people True. watching this, watching a speech. The, a lot of speeches in this movie, which I'm going to be honest, I kind of tuned out <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> like, I tried to pay attention because I wanted to engage with this as an actual, like, piece of filmmaking. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like on the, like, fifth Hitler speech, I'm like, I get it. Like, he's he's talking his normal bullshit. I almost I'm just uh I'm used to just tuning out his voice whenever I hear it kind of. <laughs> the same goes for all the other uh like Nazi leaders. They're all super sweaty. They all look <laughs> it's like every leader in this movie who gives a speech looks like he's about to have a heart attack. Yeah, there there are times in this movie I I definitely lost focus of like watching it just cuz I'm like all right, I I get it. Yeah. I get it, Lenny. You didn't need to use all the footage that you shot. There was a point I was going to make earlier about camera stuff mm-hmm. and the sort of the, the the grandiosity of of this movie and like how how the speeches are being filmed and like the, the crowds and all these things and like how much of it is there's a lot more long lens stuff in this movie than a lot of other movies from around the same time are doing hmm. probably partially because it is a semi documentary right like it's it's filming actual events occurring. And so having a long lens makes that easier to do. But then I think the movie is using that in a way to sort of create this sense of like grandeur or drama to it of like the shot that like Michael Bay is kind of famous for of like long lens uh, moving around the subject, really low angle, like looking up at them. And so like the background is moving around like really fast and there's this like it just it creates this sense of like oh this feels enormous and there's a, that technique is not to the dramatic degree that Michael Bay uses it but it's like that same sort of thing of like keeping the camera low whenever possible shooting stuff in a longer lens and like moving doing enough camera movement to kind of give a sense of like parallax and hmm. it kind of gives it even greater scale because you're seeing everything kind of in relation to each other a bit more well, yeah, the camera's always looking up at Hitler. Uh, yeah. He's uh, either, even when it's close to him, it's looking up at him. And then a lot of the time he's on top of a really tall platform and it's looking up at him there. It's all of this stuff to make him seem grand, king-like, god-like, right? Like, apart from the ways that 
I think the the kind of cinematic legacy that this movie has is mostly to do with the way that the crowd shots are composed mm-hmm. and how people have taken that like taken riff rift on that basically and star wars or other yeah. stuff um so so much star wars in this yeah <laughs> i'm just but, yeah just like fr- like framing um yes. or i'm just like i have seen this in star wars like this yeah. exact shot you know i think star wars just suffers the typical kind of film school way of looking at this movie which is apolitically because lucas used well he uses uh, the framing like, for both at least in the first movie for yeah. both the the rebellion and the empire kind of yeah like the whole medal ceremony at the end of star wars is like not shot for shot from this movie but is like very very it seems like an almost one-to-one kind of reference point for like yeah. how it's framed um, uh, which is a weird choice for Star Wars because Star Wars is kind of such an uh, otherwise like movie. <laughs> right otherwise like very anti-fascist story. But then like all other Star Wars movies are def- also definitely taking a lot of like Imperial March stuff. Like the, the even the opening music in this movie, I'm like, this sounds like the Imperial March from Star Wars, hmm. and I'm sure that that's not an accident. Like I'm that hmm. that seems like a very natural reference point for john williams to be like sure i'll take that (laughs) yeah i mean speaking of the beginning of this movie like the other kind of thing filmic thing that i think is is talked about the most with this is the beginning of the movie which is from the point of view of the plane carrying hitler down from uh down from the clouds down from the 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 serene clouds yeah, it's it starts with this very kind of, I don't know, very kind of uh, relaxed, serene, placid, just like, let's look at clouds for a minute and a half, right? But it's this almost yeah. like, look at the realm of the gods, of the Valkyries, or something like that, yeah. and then watch watch the great Hitler, like, come down from the clouds to you, right? Yeah. So, it's doing... All of this stuff with the angles and like and that scene of just making him seem like a god. You know, we're talking about the way that it's used apolitically, and there are a lot of aspects of this movie that, like we we're talking about, like they're hiding what they're doing and truly saying, and a lot of it mm. is sort of apolitical. He, he does of... kind of try to retcon the Knight of Long Knives in one of the speeches, mm-hmm. where he's talking to a, like the current leader of of like the sort of like sub organization of Nazis that he had killed. Uh, and he's like, why? Like, I don't, I don't disagree with them. Like we're friends now. Look like we're both here up here on stage. Like it's all great. And I'm like, is it <laughs> I didn't like you, you just had a bunch rival. of those dudes <laughs> murdered. So when I was paying attention to the speeches, there was definitely like, there's points where he, Hitler tries to kind of like frame himself as an underdog. And I'm like, fuck off get out of <laughs> here yeah there is like definitely with the 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 benefit of of historical hindsight you can you can see the seams of like where they're kind of talking around certain things and like trying right. not to trying to like take emphasis away from certain things and put it onto like no this is about like german culture and heritage and i'm just like yeah. no it isn't it like, might have been less eat, clear eat a... at the time whether that right. was right and that's case. like Again, were, it's like I see a lot of that in contemporary America, and it's like you'd think that 
people would have learned, but I guess not. <laughs> no, people don't learn their lessons. No. Uh, the points the points where I was most, you know, you were falling asleep during the speeches, but I think I was kind of getting lulled into a into a kind of chill sense during the marching because it's just mar- on and on and on marching, right? Mm. This movie is really only like 20 or 30% speeches and, and the rest of it is just giant crowds and marching people. Right. And there are yep. points where you can just go like, Oh, that's a pretty shot. That's nice. Like that's wow. Yeah. That's impressive. And then you see like 50,000 people say Sig Heil and you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's like a really lovely, like composed frame of early on of like, uh, window shutters being opened and like a nice potted plant in a windowsill and just two little Nazi flags stuck in the plant. And I'm like, this is such a, like a pretty shot of like yeah. a nice plant in a window, but it's like being used in this way of like, aren't, aren't Nazis grand? And I'm like, oh, it's like, I feel like that was my biggest takeaway is like kind of how pretty this movie is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, it's how it's framed and how it's lit and shot and all that stuff versus what it's actually filming is this thing that I find, like, deeply awful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, a a lot of the beginning of the movie is, it seems to be, uh, I'm not sure if it's technically Bavarian, but it seems like this this town, this Bavarian architecture in this Mm. town. And uh, so a lot of the beginning of the movie is focusing on this like classic German architecture, trying to like create a link between like German heritage and yeah. the Nazis. It does but feel like a, just, a like, lot of pretty buildings, you know, yeah, a lot of the, like the, the editing is sort of like trying to create associations, right. Between yes. things like that of like, we're going to show something like a bunch of like old classic German architecture and like people in like traditional, like German folk clothing and things like that and then like hard cut to those people like dancing with nazi soldiers or like next to them or something like like to create this like association in someone's brain that like these are the same and it's uh yeah it's it's upsetting to see now yeah post-world war ii uh lenny riefenstahl tried to defend this movie as like it's purely a documentary like there's no political agenda I was just trying to document what was happening at the time, which, first of all, whenever someone says, like, this isn't political, I call bullshit because every piece of art is inherently political. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you're trying, if you're not trying to, it doesn't change it like that. Everything carries a certain political weight to it, despite intention. But even her defense doesn't hold up at all because one Hitler paid for this movie. You can't say that it's like there's no agenda behind it because it's like the Nazis paid for it. (laughs) And then also like Lenny Riefenstahl was an active participant at all, like at the rally. So it wasn't like, she wasn't like some German filmmaker just happened to like, I'm going to bring a camera along and document this thing that's happening. Like, and she's been on board this whole time, right? Like I, uh, in the Dan Olson video, he talks about the previous propaganda documentary that Mm -hmm. Lenny Riefenstahl made for the Nazis, which had been, which they did their best to scrub from existence because it portrayed them as being friends with the people they had assassinated during the night. Right. Like that has a bunch of the people that got assassinated, right? 
Yeah, uh, apparently. Yeah, I haven't seen it. And, but... Yeah, and neither like, did I. But I also saw that that it's like in like, like she... a few a few months after that movie was released, like half the people in that movie were killed. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like you know, if she's continuing to participate. She's involved. Like, like yeah, this is not. Yeah, yeah that's ridiculous. <laughs> Something good to come out of this movie, I guess. Or a thing that I enjoy that came out of this movie, besides Star Wars, that is somewhat more positive, is in 1942, there was a, uh, uh, a, a movie tone newsreel editor named Charles Ridley took footage from Triumph of the Will and recut it with a German cover of a song called The Lambeth Walk, which is from a musical. And it's like this incredibly like Cockney show tune thing. And it, there was like a whole dance craze in the late 30s, which is why a German cover of it even existed. Was the dance craze goose-stepping? <laughs> no. But um, apparent, unsubstantiated, it's possible slash likely that the Nazis hated the music. But so this, this newsreel editor uh, in England took footage from this movie and recut it to that song as a sort of like anti-Nazi propaganda film huh and it is it's very silly because it's like a bunch of goose stepping but it's been like re-edited to like time with the music that's very youtube era that's a thing is it's like a really early example of like a remix slash like shit post (laughs) it's yeah it's like the auto-tune the news of 1942 that's what it feels like and that will (laughs) Put, we'll throw that up in the video version of this. Wow, um, yeah, and, probably and without probably without audio. Um, but we'll link it in like the show notes, which is like I don't know, it's it's such a weird cultural artifact of because it 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 the way that it's edited feels very contemporary. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, speaking of video of this, um, it is <laughs> probably a good thing that it's like not super easy to get your hands on this movie. Uh, like it, it exists, but it's not like people are just advertising. Like, hey, buy buy our copy of Triumph of the Will. <laughs> I mean, it's on DVD. Like, it's get it from the library, right? But like, the main people who are releasing it on Blu-ray and DVD are are Synapse. Oh yeah, which is uh, weird. An exploitation movie company, which is like, I get that. You know, Kino has a release of Birth of a Nation, right? And it mm-hmm. puts it in its context. And I'm sure there are a lot of racists who buy that Blu-ray, but, like, they're doing their best to avoid... Right, they're not marketing it it to them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, like, this movie is being sold next to Frankenhooker. It's just, like, kind of a weird juxtaposition, you know? It it doesn't really feel like the, the right context for it. A lot of the places also that I'd seen this movie uploaded on the internet... A lot. Some of the comments are, "Thank you for uploading this. This is a fascinating history. You know, uh, oh, the Nazis were horrible, or whatever." And then, like one out of every ten is, "They were right. Thank you for doing this and uploading this, like this wonderful film." You know, and it's like, God. I mean, yikes. it's the inter- it's the internet, but it's like it's like, how do you deal with media this way, like like this? Right. Yeah, and that's Look. that's a. Uh... Uh, a good but also very big question yeah because it like it definitely should be preserved and i think it should be like people should see it 
I mean, this is the second time I've seen this movie. I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13, maybe. You saw it when you were 12? I, well, maybe, maybe it was like 14, 15. I don't know. But I saw it when I was like an adolescent. Mm-hmm. Because my mom was like, no, like, you, you need to see this shit. <laughs> kind of. Like, it's... Uh-huh, yeah. It was I, as part of my, like, history education. Which I think it 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 serves a, a an important purpose in that because then also when I see like certain right wing political rallies that are like probably actively trying to ape this movie, I'm like, I see what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, you know, say what you if, will if, about if, the if... Nazis though, but they they are much more dedicated to aesthetics than oh for modern sure. day conservatives are like modern day conservatives have look, awful look taste. like dog shit <laughs> right right like like conservatives have very bad taste in like like in art right yeah and yeah and absolutely. so the stuff that they make looks like shit yeah and like something about something that's interesting about this is that like uh uh the right-wing people of 30s germany like had good aesthetic senses in some ways you know yeah and so they were able to make probably more effective propaganda and more beautiful movies uh <laughs> and not like i don't know the christmas carol that has like a, a somebody goofing <laughs> around playing michael uh mike what's his name michael moore uh and has Kelsey Grammer and all these other conservative John Voight and all these other people in it. And like, you, like conservatives these days, they make movies that look like garbage yeah, <laughs> because they are garbage. And I'm, like, I'm wondering how much, like definitely a lot of the, the, um, the like boom of like good filmmaking that came out of, uh, like Weimar Germany was mostly spearheaded by like very left wing intellectual Jews. Art, artists who people. left yeah yeah they were all jewish and or gay and they all left but i'm <laughs> curious how much of that like very fertile sort of like space for artistic expression kind of at least le- let someone like lenny riefenstahl kind of like learn better craft yeah maybe i don't know i wrote a few few adjectives here while i was watching it uh sh- like showing the kind of like uh the i don't know two sides of this movie just captivating boring elegant horrifying imposing and bland yeah uh, which it is yeah. it is it is a, a a film full of contradiction in that yeah in that way for sure speaking of oh boy how to transition now <laughs> i do guess we need, we, do we need we, a segue <laughs> we could segue into something else that is dealing with sort of horror okay yeah, I don't know. Mostly because I don't know where else to place this other movie. Also because spoilers, I think this was my favorite movie that we watched for this year. Not Ooh. not the Hitler one, the one that we're about to talk about, Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> what a long wind up! Yes, it's hard to transition out of uh, out of the Nazi movie into this, which is a pretty silly movie. <laughs> yes, but uh, but uh, also like uh, a lot of things. We'll we'll get into it. So yeah, this is uh, James Whales' uh, r- reluctant return to Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh boy, what a what a picture this is! Mm-hmm. This was a movie that I think I had I had never seen it before watching it for this show, and it was always one of those things that it it, it was like, oh, Bride of Frankenstein is like 
a masterpiece. Like you gotta check it out. Like it's 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 way better than the original one. Yada yada yada. And I'm like, really? Like I don't know. I've seen like the clips of it and things, and it it seems kind of silly. And I was like, all right, whatever. Like sure, I'll I'll check it out. And it was always this sort of thing where it's like, oh, that movie is like so good. And I'm like, we'll see. And then yeah. I watched it, and I was like, no, this is. They were correct. This movie is great. <laughs> this is maybe it's it's unclear to me like how much of this movie was made with uh the production code in mind mm. there was a, a quote from james whale uh being kind of like warned about all of the deaths in it there were originally 21 deaths in the movie and they were <laughs> they were cut down to 10 because J- James Whale said, kill them all and let Breen sort it out. Uh, Breen being the, <laughs> the guy who is enforcing the, the, the yeah. production code. So it's like, I, I don't know how much of this movie was made with the code in mind, but it is much lighter of a film than the original Frankenstein. Like, I think it's I mean, overwhelmingly yeah. campy and silly, right? Well, uh, well that, that brings up the question of like, can can camp be intentional or does that ruin it? I don't, I don't think this movie is necessarily intentionally silly, but I, I, I think do think <laughs> you think so. I think it's intentionally it's intentionally like sort of melodramatic, I would say, mm-hmm. and sort of like operatic, maybe in a sense where it's like it's very I think it's leaning even more into kind of like um uh like expressionism and kind of like uh that kind of filmmaking than the first Frankenstein movie. Yeah, it definitely yeah, it has more of a control of imagery than the first mm-hmm. Frankenstein movie. More more thoughtfully put together, I think. Um but I I also think this movie is like weirdly kind of a, a better adaptation of the book Frankenstein than the first movie. Like a lot of a lot of the big kind of the big scenes in this movie are taken from, and the entire concept of this movie is taken from the book. Um, and it also has Mary Shelley herself in the movie too. talking Which, about Frankenstein. Should we just start, like, start at the beginning and and kind of hit hit the beats? What better a place to start than the beginning? Um, I do think it's funny. Right at the start of this movie, it does the opening, you know, the the cast credits, and Boris Karloff is just credited as Karloff. Like, he's reached such heights of fame that he's, like, he's a single-name person now. He's just Karloff. That's that's right. all I need to put. And in the opening credits, it also uh, does the same bit as they did in the original Frankenstein, where it said the monster is played by question mark. Question mark. But then it also, it doesn't give it away, but then it's, like, because Elsa Lancaster, Lan- Lan- Lancaster, Lanchester, Worcestershire. Um, yeah, uh, also plays Mary Shelley, and she is credited in the opening credits as Mary Shelley, so then yeah. it's like, oh, well, okay. Well, yeah. Right, in the, in this movie, it does, like, what, says, like, something like, the monster's bride, and then yeah. dot, 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 question mark. Which is, so. I, I, it's a good bit. I it's think good, kind of yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the movie opens on this great, like, miniature shot of a castle, feels very Batman Returns, and it's, there's, like, a little framing device of... Mary and Percy Shelley in a castle during a thunderstorm talking to Byron. And then Byron has this sort of speech where he's like, oh, that book that you wrote, Frankenstein, so good. 
kind of almost just like remind the audience like hey remember frankenstein pretty great movie huh (laughs) then they're like they're showing clips of the first movie which is extra funny because it's like last time on frankenstein (laughs) right but byron is recapping the movie version which is like almost completely different from the book so he's like hey remember shelly remember that book that you wrote where like there was a big windmill that caught on fire and it's like that doesn't happen in the book dude (laughs) see i haven't read the book but this whole framing device of Mary Shelley talking about, she's like, yes, but I had some other stuff that I wanted to say about Frankenstein, you know, mm. and then justifying its own existence by inserting a fake Mary Shelley to say, I wrote this. Yeah. But uh, it felt very, like, very just try, like, yeah, this kind of like a naked trying to justify its own existence. Right. I'm just because... like, look, we know that, like, we did this, like, movie had a full ending, but, like, just go with us here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, again, like there's there's more Mary Shelley stuff in this movie than the first Frankenstein movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Was wasn't I don't remember Mary Shelley in the first Frankenstein. No, but movie. I mean just in terms of like stuff that she wrote. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Almost right away we get um Una O'Connor who was uh the loud old lady from the Invisible Man is doing back. the same bit here. Same bit. James Whale loves Una O'Connor and will just... I, yeah, I like, on one hand, I, I kind of get it because it's like, sure, but she's doing a lot. And I think this is part of what you're saying. If I like this movie almost immediately feels a lot sillier. Yeah. He wrote this part specifically for her is what I heard. But it's like, I feel like everyone else is doing this sort of like more kind of controlled, like, ah, oh, drama. This is very serious. And Una O'Connor is playing this like it is a Monty Python sketch is like... Okay. Playing it so big and so silly. Yeah, I mean... Which isn't bad, but it just, it feels, it doesn't feel like it's connected with the rest of the movie so much. There was a a special feature on the Blu-ray of the original Frankenstein that had an interview with, um, with, uh, 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 Magneto. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Ian McKellen? (laughs) Yes, Ian McKellen. Yeah. I had an interview with Ian McKellen where... (laughs) Magneto. (laughs) Gandalf was there talking about the movie. Yeah. And then um, he was talking about, because he played James Whale in the biopic Gods and mm-hmm. Monsters, which is named after a line from this movie. Yeah. And he was referring to some of the work that James Whale did as camp, right? He was thinking, mm. like, James, you know, this Ian McKellen is a gay man who was playing James Whale, who was a gay man in the 30s, right? Mm-hmm. And. This feels very proto-camp, very proto-like intentional sixties and seventies gay like silliness, you know. But at the same time, I also got that from it. But at the same time, it it doesn't feel as kind of like intentionally silly, I guess, as what I think of as camp tends to right. be. It's an older version, but it's like this. This is a lighter movie. It's a lighter movie and less serious movie, I think, than the original Frankenstein. And, like, I I mean, I think we're going to get to this scene later, but there's a part where, like, Frank, <laughs> where the, the monster is smoking a cigar, and he goes, smoke, good. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like, it's, like, yeah. hilarious. <laughs> it, is, it is very funny and very silly. It's true. Uh, there's a bunch of kind of weird, like, retconning of the first movie, or, like, recasting of a lot of actors like mm-hmm. the the dad of the girl who gets drowned in the first movie is named um 
Ludwig in in that one and is renamed Hans in this movie and played by a different actor who is just playing a different character, basically. Like, no, doesn't look the same, not playing a similar personality type or anything. And he, like, almost immediately gets murdered by the monster in a, and he falls into a wet cave. Thankfully, there was a wet cave beneath the, the burning windmill. So uh, <laughs> the monster was able to escape. And someone yells, it's alive! Because they were like, we know the line that you liked from the first one. <laughs> it's it's very like uh, Terminator Two. I'll be back, kind of like ah, that that thing you liked from the first movie. It's back. Very sequel. This movie. <laughs> it it is very sequel. Yeah, it's true. Also, Elizabeth Frankenstein is recast. She was played by Mae Clark in the Thirty One movie, and is played by Valerie Hobson in this movie. One of the things that struck me about this movie right away, like in the first couple scenes, is the production design of it is gobsmackingly gorgeous. Yeah. More adventurous camera as well. Yeah. Yeah. Lot, lots of like dolly moves, a lot of like a lot more kind of like camera movement and just like really great lighting and sort of like set design stuff, hmm. like really leaning into the like the really heightened like gothic stuff. There was definitely a fair bit of that in. 31 Frankenstein movie also, but yeah. it feels like it's kind of kicked up a notch here. The sound movies looked like shittier back then. Right, yeah. And and I think they're they have in the years since figured out how to make the sound movies start looking as good as a as a uh, silent movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's the this movie kind of it feels like it has some of that kind of like silent grandeur that mm-hmm. was missing in a lot of the early talkies. Pretty early on, we're we're introduced to um, a new character, Doctor Pretorius, which is a hell of a name. Yeah, who is Doctor Frankenstein's old professor, mentor. Yeah, who kind of like got him inspired to start in the dark arts of right. Uh, and I feel like bodies. Pretty quickly, the movie's establishing like you thought Frankenstein was crazy. Check out this guy; he's even crazier. Well, right. Like, I thought it was interesting how this movie starts with Frankenstein just being, like, at the end of the original Frankenstein movie, he realizes, I have done something bad. This was not mm-hmm. good. Right. I should not do this anymore. He has and, his sort of redemption arc. And and the movie keeps that, right? Mm-hmm. Where he resists the call to action. Uh, where Because Dr. Pretorius comes in, he's like, hey, you made a monster. Uh, let's make yeah. another monster together. <laughs> yeah. And he and he spends a lot of time uh, resisting Dr. Pretorius for all of the reasons that you have seen in the first movie mm-hmm. until he's like kind of threatened into it. I think there was a really interesting thing in that where it's like, he's resisting it and he's saying like, no, 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 I can't, I can't, like, that's bad. No more monsters. But you can kind of see behind his eyes, he's like, I do really love making monsters so much, though. <laughs> like, you like you can see how tempting it is. He's like, I love science. When Dr. Pretorius reveals his menagerie of Lilliputian people, his, yeah. like, mi- miniature people that he's grown from eggs in little glass jars. Oh, no. He said he grew them from seed. <laughs> I mean, that's... I took that as, you know, he, like, had a, a little petri dish with like you know genetic material in it and grew them yeah like this 
yes think about it <laughs> there's there's a lot of talk about seed in this in this movie for sure Th- this movie he was like and, he I, was and inter- I don't and i don't think that it's unintentional i don't i don't think so either like it's it's very ridiculous like he's saying like you you know you made your monster out of bodies that already existed and i grew mine from seed and i'm like ew <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how all people get made. I guess that's true. Yes, (laughs) but Doctor Pretorius can't seem to get past the the three inch margin. All his people are like the size of action figures for some reason, and he's like, "I haven't, I I haven't cracked it. I can't make them big yet." Yeah, and they they have little high pitched voices, and they're little they're little scamps inside of their glass jars. This scene is like one of the most amazing visual effects scenes. Of any movie yeah. up until this point. Like, it is so good. This is the same VFX guy from Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it looks really good. It's a combination of rotoscoping and, uh, like, black velvet background, quote-unquote, green screen and double exposure. Right, but it's, like, it's so well, like, so well done. Like, there's nary a matte line to be seen. There's, like, reflections on the table of the glass jar... But then yeah. there's also reflections on the glass jar in front of the people in them. So it's you, like they've been yeah, you can see Dr. Pretorius like morphing like through the back of the glass. Yeah. So it's the same people are in. They used a combination of, of full size jars to keep the full size actors in and then mixed them with the tiny jars on the set. The best visual effects are always a combination of like multiple things between every shot. So you can't quite pin down how they're doing it, I think. I don't know if you watch the the Corridor Crew YouTube channel. Yeah, occasionally. They just uploaded Steamboat Willie unedited. Oh, really? <laughs> of course. As a bit, I I assume. But they they talked about this scene on one of their videos and they're always the people who are like going in like into a pixel. I'm like, "Oh, that pixel's like the wrong shade of green. Like I know how this was done." And mm-hmm. this they're like, "I pff, who knows?" Like it's so wow, because it's I all also that. because it's all like optical effects, you know? It's like Yeah. If, once you know After Effects and, like, you know, Blender and things, like, once you understand how, like, computer-generated effects work, I think it's kind of easier to find the seams in those. Mm-hmm. Whereas optical things are usually, it's, like, a, such a weird combination of, like, we used a mirror here, and then this is forced perspective, and then that's a, a mat, and that's a multiple exposure, and we combined them all together. But there's there's so little here that is, like, oh, I see where it's, like, that like a, a different camera plate that they like cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all very seamless and very polished. There, there are a couple parts where you can see like slightly rough rotoscoping around the, the little people, but uh, it, for the most part, it looks really good. Yeah. Like if, if this movie was released in like 1965, I would still be like, that's good effects. Yeah. Yeah. He makes his little people and uh, talks about ushering in a new age of gods and monsters. Which is where the line comes from. That's what uh, that's what uh, Russell Crowe says in, in the Dark Universe Mummy movie. Oh man! <laughs> Which I don't understand why they didn't make Van Helsing the like Nick Fury character in that. I, we don't need to talk about the 2015 Mummy movie for that long again. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna keep bringing it up. The Dark Universe is a very good punchline. It is. Also, I find that movie kind of fascinating for how terrible it is. But so Dr. Pretorius's sort of mad scheme is that he wants to create like a whole a whole race of like man-made 
people. Dr. Frankenstein is not. He's like, I think that's probably a bad idea. See exhibit A. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Pretorius is like, you made you made a, a man. I think we should make a woman and then see what happens. And I'm like, Pretorius is kind of a perv, huh? But so there, there's, you know, there's that plot that's happening of like, Praetorius and Frankenstein are sort of having their like philosophical debates over the nature of science and and creation. Meanwhile, the creature who Frank, we... Frankenstein the monster, <laughs> yeah, is on the run, and there's uh, a scene from the book where he he saves a drowning woman who fell into a lake, and then immediately gets shot because someone sees him and is like a monster. Um, they catch the monster and he gets chained up in a dungeon and then like immediately breaks out. Like they close the door and he like smashes out of the door (laughs) and uh, looking for a place to hide. He, he runs into a little shack where he meets a blind man who being blind doesn't see that he is like a a creature. And this is kind of like one of the big set pieces of this movie. And like a, a huge part of the book is the creature, like learning to speak and like learning Oh, some of his humanity from like me in the book. It's like a whole family that he is like hmm. spying on for months and months and months and like learning to speak from. And then eventually he he uh, talks to just the dad who's blind. This they make it just a blind hermit who lives alone. And he's like, I don't have any friends. Like, come on in. Like, sure. Sit by the fire. Have a cigar. Yeah. And, and like, it's this kind of. You know, the, the blind man feels ostracized for his, um, you know, for his disability. And he kind of surmises that that uh, the monster is is mute. And mm-hmm. so he, he's trying to, like, you know, build communication w- and trust between the two of them. Because this, like, very innocent guy is not is not judging our monster like everyone right. else does. Is he, this is, like, the first character to treat the monster with any modicum of like respect or humanity of like, like come sit, have food. Yeah. And it is, it is fairly like it, it tugs the heartstrings a little bit of just like how reluctant the monster is to be like, he's like ready to smash this guy. And it's like, Oh, like I can sit. And then he, <laughs> le- he learns to say friend, <laughs> which friend. feels like such a, one of those things where I'm like, that's such a like pop culture punchline almost of like someone going friend. And I'm like, Oh, I'm pretty sure that's like, this movie is the origin of that. Right. <laughs> and he soon, as, as we talked about earlier, he soon learns a couple other words, which yeah. are <laughs> smoke, drink, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. He offers him like whiskey or whatever. He's like, I like whiskey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Boris Karlov is very good in these scenes of playing the kind of the more lighthearted scenes in this. Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of a victim of like, it's been parodied so much in like Young Frankenstein and cartoons and things that like having a, a guy who looks like Boris Karlov Frankenstein monster smoking a cigar and saying like, Mmm, smoke good in that voice. It's like it's it's it can't not be silly. Like you I think it, I think it always was. It must have been. I think it always was, but I think it's additionally extra silly now because we've yeah. had so many decades of like pop culture riffs on it. 
Like in 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 the original Frankenstein, he is scary, and in this, he's mm-hmm. a cutie patootie. He's he's just like he's just going around being I a mean, nice he, cute he, boy. <laughs> he kills more people in this movie than in the first one, though. But it's not, it doesn't like. It doesn't, it, you know, it's not unjustified, <laughs> right? Well, this is another thing. It's that all I think, in retaliation. I think I this think. movie is using the book as a good reference point. Is that in the book, the the creature is both very sympathetic and is very tragic, and it is also terrifying because mm. it's like initially it's like oh it's it's everyone like everyone disowns everyone treats him like a like a monster because they're afraid of him and how he looks, and then basically what happens in this movie plays out where like he he makes a single friend and learns to speak and then other people show up and also immediately reject him and that that one sort of like tether to humanity is severed and then he kind of goes off the deep end hmm. and in the book he becomes a like super villain mastermind who is like framing frankenstein for murder and things like that um and this he kind of is more of a kind of lumbering, grunting, sort of like, fire bad. He does say that also. He does, he doesn't ever get to speak, like, full sentences like he does in, in the book. I, I like how this movie is trying to both make him, like, sweeter and nicer in some scenes and also kind of more threatening and scarier in others. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it is, they maybe lean a bit more into the the, <laughs> the funny stuff. And uh, so he gets he gets chased away from the the old hermit's house by some hunters, and uh, goes to hide in a crypt, where coincidentally Dr. Pretorius is having a picnic, because um, he's looking for uh, more sort of corpses for Dr. Frankenstein to experiment on. And then he's like, "Oh, it's you! Welcome!" But Welcome. before he's like there with his goons, right? And he's like, "Yeah, like dig up these bodies, take them away." And then like, "Are you coming, also, sir?" And like, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay down here and have a sandwich and like light some candles." I like to, I like to chill in a crypt. <laughs> and yeah, he's like having a full on like picnic with a bunch of bones, and then he sees the creature and it's like, "You want a cigar? You want, you want some wine?" And so then. Pretorius is able to sell the creature on the idea of like making a making a bride for him, which is another thing from the book. I don't want to keep hashing on that, but that that is also like it's it's a pretty small section in the book where it's like the creature is like make me a woman. <laughs> in this, it's they they give that idea to Pretorius. Pretorius is a good sort of like external villain that they're able to kind of put all of the. He probably drives the plot more than any other character in this, but it's like, yeah. he's the one who kind of comes up with all the bad ideas. <laughs> he's like the most, he's the only character in this that is a like straight up, like overt villain kind of. Mm-hmm. And so then he gets the, the creature to kidnap Elizabeth Frankenstein and thus forcing the doctor's hand. There is, I like the scene where Praetorius and the creature both confront Dr. Frankenstein and there's a bit of kind of like I don't know there's that tension of like oh no this this guy's back I don't want to talk to him and then it's like <laughs> oh he can he can talk now and so then the kind of the whole like back third of this movie almost is like going back to the old castle lab like going to the old set like turn on all the old electrical <laughs> equipment 
blow off the dust and yeah. make a lady this time. This section is very cool because it is there is a bit of that like sequel thing of like oh it's the set from the first movie oh cool, but then they're they're doing all like weird and they're like the band's back together yeah like, we're uh, we're like fr- like Doctor Frankenstein is kind of getting into it again right because right? this is when he's like when he's actually you know cooking right it's like you can see the excitement in his eyes of like he loves he loves doing mad science so he's in his element uh, I missed this yeah. And then um, Dwight Fry is in this again as a different, like, weirdo guy, right? He plays Fritz, the assistant, in the first one. And in this, he plays Carl, who's just, like, a different henchman guy. Like, he's Pretorius's henchman, not Frankenstein's henchman. But I thought it was funny that, like, they cast the same actor of just, like... And I was like, wait, is that Fritz or is that a different guy? Different guy. He's good at it. He's good at being a henchman. Yeah. There's like even more like weird electrical Tesla coil equipment in this and like things that spark. Yeah. Lots of Dutch angles, which is fun. There's a whole section of like doing science experiments where they're using a heartbeat. They're like getting a heart to beat with electrical current. And that's kind of acting as the score to the scene. That was really cool. was very cool. And that's like feels very, uh, I don't know, kind of ahead of its time to me of like using kind of a a diegetic sound effect kind of as score for the scene. And I think notable is that maybe this is a kind of postcode concession was that they don't actually show the heart, Mm. right? They kind of talk about it and it's just off frame. Yeah. Because like, I don't know if it seems like they, they felt like they would have a hard time getting away with showing like a beating human heart in in on a Maybe. film yeah in, in 35 but uh so they make a they they use the corpses of recently deceased people and by that i mean someone that carl murders <laughs> they send carl out to murder a woman to use the body of um but they grow the they grow the brain from scratch that's like a, pretorius grows the brain he handles that side of things i guess he can grow a full-size brain he's figured that much out <laughs> And then they they make a bride. They make a a, a a woman Frankenstein creature with the with the big hair, the the iconic yeah right. Uh, and that's shock like, of hair. Yeah. And then the movie ends like two minutes later. Like, yeah, I the was actual, surprised. I think how, I had, how little bride of right, Frankenstein. I had in this probably movie. seen almost her entire screen time in just like clips from this movie that I'd already seen. Like, yeah, yeah, she is in this movie shockingly for like a shockingly small amount of time. It's like so they 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 bring the bride to life, and then male monster is like woman for me, friend, <laughs> and she screams and is uh, upset. <laughs> And he's like, she hate me. I ugly. No. Um, <laughs> and so then he blows up the lab with the bride and with Praetorius in it after but, saying, but he, we he belong lets... dead. <laughs> Which is a good line. Like, that is yeah. a great. There's also a line he has earlier when he's in the crypt where he's like, he says something about it's it's like he preferred being dead. Like being alive is is pain and agony constantly. And I was like, that's heavy. Like, that's... Yeah. I think Boris Karloff is very good in those moments where he's, like, yeah. really kind of showing pathos. And he uh, he lets Frankenstein go. He kind right. of realizes... Like, he realizes that, like, 
you know, Frankenstein. You, you trying stay, to do the I right go. Thing. No following. <laughs> yes. And then the it's right. The the like the lab blows up, and for Henry and Elizabeth Frankenstein get out. And then it's like hard cut to credits. Like there is no. I feel like old movies do this a lot, where it's like, nope, that's the end. There is there is zero like epilogue or sort of like falling action. I like that honestly. Like there there are a lot of modern movies where I'm like, okay, story's yeah. over. And I mean, movie. also this movie is like <laughs> 75 minutes long. This movie is like very brisk. It it yeah. it gets in, it does its thing, it gets out. I I do like that about it. I saw this at Alamo, and I was getting my check before I even saw the the bride, and I was like, oh, this movie <laughs> is this movie short. <laughs> yeah. It is pretty nuts how how little bride there is in this movie because it is such an iconic image, right? Like mm-hmm. the Jack Pierce did the makeup again for this movie and designed the whole thing. Apparently, the hair, the iconic hair, is based on Nefertiti, like like an Egyptian like hair slash like headdress mm-hmm. shape. Mm-hmm. Which, looking at it, makes sense, but I'd never, I wouldn't have thought of... I see it as just like, oh yeah, it's the Brad Frankenstein here. <laughs> right. It's got the lightning bolts on it. It's a, it's a beehive. She, yeah, she's got a big kind of like, uh, like xenomorph kind of, kind of thing going on. Well, it's, with it's a, more... With a shock of, of, of white hair going it's, through. It's, it's less, it's less of a beehive than I thought it was. I feel like it's, in parodies, it's usually more of a beehive shape. And this, it is more of a kind of like Egyptian, like, it's more cylindrical, I guess, if that makes right. sense. Also, Lancaster doesn't get a lot to do, really. She gets, like, one very short scene where she, like, comes to life and then screams and then gets exploded. <laughs> yeah. As as we all do, right? <laughs> yeah. What else, what else is there to life? Become alive, scream, explode. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who wrote it, but one of my favorite letterboxed reviews of I checked the letterboxd reviews of this after I watched it one of them is this is about a a, a lesbian and a gay man who get set up who get set up on a blind date and and hate each other <laughs> yeah i'm i'm paraphrasing but um i i like that read of this movie <laughs> gay frankenstein confirmed i don't necessarily know if this movie has a a, a huge clear thesis other than just like don't make Frankenstein monsters like don't do it <laughs> you did it once it was a bad idea don't do it a second time right either. yeah it's uh it's it's fun it's the, this movie is a, is fun but I, I think the especially Dr. Frankenstein Henry Frankenstein as is, his name is in the movie and Boris Karloff are both they're like character stuff I thought was very good in this movie it was like it mm-hmm. felt like a natural progression of what they did in the first one it didn't feel forced and it felt like they were enriching the characters that they had played already by having more things happen to them. True. Yeah. I feel like th- this movie has a long, like, cultural shadow. And there's lo- lots of things that I had previously associated with, like, Frankenstein stuff. I didn't realize came from this movie and not some other things. So Right. Yeah. Like him talking in broken English. and uh... Right. Yeah. Because like he doesn't do any of that in the first one. I thought that, that was almost like sort of like the way that Igor like doesn't exist. Like he's either Fritz, the hunchback, or he's Igor, the other guy who isn't a hunchback. Yeah. I thought the sort of like the Frankenstein speech thing was more of that kind of like weird mishmash of like different 
things. But no, it's just like verbatim from this movie. Uh, speaking of another silly movie. Okay, let's go we'll you, do some comedy. You want you want to hop over to the comedy world? Sure. Well, let's talk about Top Hat. Okay. All because right. in Young Frankenstein, the, le- the lesser the lesser silly. In Young Frankenstein, they do a lot of Top Hat dancing. And so that's a good transition. <laughs> wow. Um, but Top Hat is a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers dance joint. Yeah. Uh, famous duo. I'd never seen any of their movies. I mean, I'd see Ginger Rogers is in Gold Diggers of 1933, but that that was it. Yeah, this is already their fourth movie together. And they did not a third or fourth movie. And they did nine together. I think it's their third I think I think they did Flying Down to Rio, which they're like not top build in. And then they're also in The Gay Divorcee, which is the same director and a lot of the same cast. And that was like marketed as a like Astaire Rogers picture. And uh, their, their chemistry is great. So I yeah. understand why why they're yeah. doing makes that. makes sense. Any scene where like they're together is very good. I feel like both the sort of like larger dance set pieces and a lot of the like comic plot hijinks stuff, I feel like I liked more in Gold Diggers and like like the Ernst Lubitsch movies that we've watched. I think yeah. there there are this has a lot in common with those types of movies. There's a lot of like comedy of manners and like mistaken identity and there's like clear sort of thirties I mean, comedy is a- bits that they like to do. This is another entry in what I'm realizing is my favorite 30s genre, which is uh, which is uh, people who are in love fuck with each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just messing with each other the entire time, and they don't realize that they love each other. Or, or I don't know, they, they, there's like a lot of this... Yeah, like you're well, saying, they, mistaken yeah. identity or, like, or, or incorrect assumptions about things. Yeah. And so they're just... They're just playfully mean to each other. And yeah. I love these 30s comedies where people are playfully mean to each other. Yeah. Like, I mean, it happened one night and designed for a living and Thin Man. Gold Diggers, Thin Man. Yeah. Like, it's it's great. I love it. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> mean 30s uh, comedies are a great, a great thing. So this, like, yeah, this isn't... I think Designed for a Living is probably my favorite of this type, but I mm. really enjoyed it in this movie. I thought it was really yeah. good. I feel like kind of the last couple that we watched, like, I probably like this less than Designed for a Living, Thin Man, or Gold Diggers of 33, but it's still a very fun movie. And it still has some, like, really amazing dance stuff in it and some some kind of just, like, classic rom-com hijinks. Yeah, uh, like being mad at somebody, and like as soon as they leave the room, they smile. Like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> There's also like uh, a lot of kind of like returning, like character actors. There's um, Edward Everett Horton is in this movie, yeah. who is also in Design for a Living, and I feel like at least one other Pl- movie that we watched, right? Playing, playing. I think it might have just been Design for a Living. I was looking um, at his filmography a bit, but uh, yeah, he was playing a similar character of just yeah. Uh, Kind he, of uh, fuddy duddy. He, he, or he like plays a, like a, a rich, like stuck up dude who kind of sucks. In yeah, and he's very good at it. He's kind of the male Margaret Dumont a little bit. 
like they both play like very like upper crust like oh my how i like how how could you like he has a what, what is the meaning of this? a little more dimensionality than that i think i think so but, especially yeah. in this movie in this movie he's more his character is a lot more likable than in design for living in design yeah. for living it's like is is very much like oh fuck this guy <laughs> i did out loud i said this fucker when he appeared on screen so <laughs> which is said only with love i i love edward everett horton in in stuff i think yeah. i like the 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 lane that he's found for himself in 30s comedies is very good speaking of alamo draft house they often use the beginning of this movie as part of their uh don't talk uh pre-roll thing Oh, that's where I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah. So the the opening of this movie is is Fred Astaire is in uh the Thackeray Club of London where there's a big sign that says silence. You can't you can't make any noise and there's a bunch of old old English gentlemen in tuxedos who are like if you like hit a glass against a plate it'll make too much a noise and everyone goes shh. And so Fred Astaire is trying to like f- fold a newspaper very quietly. But then at the end of the scene, when he's leaving, he does a the little tap dancing and freaks everybody out. <laughs> this, uh, uh, that, that has been an Alamo don't talk message for a long time. One of their more like family friendly ones. Uh, and the fact <laughs> that like the, the giant kid that comes out of the, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Is that, uh, uh, Alamo don't talks used to be, don't talk messages used to be a lot edgier and and meaner and uh they as they have gotten more corporate they're like okay what can we can we can do the family friendly top hat clip uh i I think like i think we can't we can't anymore it's good but it's like oh we can't do the uh (laughs) we can't do the there's a sniper in the projection booth and he's going to explode you with his bullet uh anymore (laughs) i don't remember ever seeing that one but um uh, speaking of the tap dancing, it's a lot of fun in this movie, uh, yeah. and it made me want to start trying to tap dance oh, because me, I just want to like I want to immerse myself in the 30s. And uh, here's the here's the thing: watching this movie absolutely made me want to like be good at dancing, which I don't know if I'm like physically capable of. I'm sure if I like really dedicated the time to it, but I, I don't have a like very natural uh, talent or like sense of rhythm. <laughs> Let's 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 try and learn to tap tap dance together. I think that would be fun. That would be fun. But watching this movie and movies like this, I'm like, ugh, people who are good at dancing look like they're having a grand old time, and I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like a nice way of sort of like, because it's a it's a sort of minimal form of dancing where the point the point is more the sound you're making, and you're just kind of like, it's almost like a an amplified version of just like tapping your hands on the table along mm. to a beat, you know. Yeah. But you're you're kind of amplifying the sound that's already there yeah. with uh with the tapping. When I was watching this movie and ideating about buying tap shoes, <laughs> I uh I I walked over to my partner after the movie was over, and I was like, I have found a new way to make a racket. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- very apt for this movie because. <laughs> the, the the two romantic leads would never possibly have met if he wasn't making a racket yeah. with his tap dancing. This was some more like really charming stuff in the beginning of this movie where Edward Edward Everett Horton's character, Mr. Hardwick, tells Fred Astaire, uh, you should settle down and get a wife. And then he sings a whole song 
about how he's glad to be free and not have a wife. And the song ends with him. He's like, who is that? (laughs) Future wife material. (laughs) Also, Mr. Hardwick is saying like, you need to like settle down. And meanwhile, he's like, there's a woman downstairs and she wants to see me. Hello. And it was like putting on his hat, which is a kind of a recurring joke throughout the movie is that uh, Mr. Hardwick is not, is like married, but kind of remains a ladies man a little bit. While he's singing his, uh, I I don't want a wife song. He's half dancing, <laughs> and then uh, and then the camera just goes down through the floor in one of those right, like classic right classic yeah. like shots of kind of moving from one one floor to the other and showing like the in between part, mm-hmm. and then it's just like it's just Ginger Rogers looking up like, is this guy seriously <laughs> tap dancing above me? <laughs> Like, classic upstairs neighbor. Yeah. Classic, (laughs) if you've ever lived in any apartment in New York City situation. I I thankfully have never lived below a tap dancer, but... You you have people below you, right? I do, but I don't tap dance. You will soon. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I would do it. I'd probably have to, like, go to a a dance gym. They have those, right? A studio. (laughs) Yeah, it's where you um, lift weights with your feet. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I, I like about the opening scene in the in the the silent club is that it it's like a funny bit where he's trying to be quiet and like fold his newspaper, but it it immediately establishes that uh, Fred Astaire's character Jerry Travers is he's a little bit of a he's a little stinker. This he's guy. a scamp. Yeah. yeah, he's a scamp. He's he's a bit of a troublemaker. He's like. He's got a he's got a sense of humor and he's he's willing to mess with people, which will will come back. There's another character that gets introduced early on, uh, Bates, who is uh, Mr. Hardwick's butler, valet, I think is what they call him. Um, and his, his all-purpose fixer in this right. movie. And Bates refers to himself slash themselves in the plural, but it's very inconsistent. He's sort of like Venom. Uh, like we we have your shoes for you, sir. Um, but it's inconsistent because it, initially it was like, oh, they're like really sticking to this, and they are even other characters are only referring to him with like plural pronouns. But huh. then it's like even Bates is not consistent with it. Like within a, sen- a sentence, he will he will refer to himself as I or yeah. I guess it's it's probably just going for like a yeah like almost like a royal we sort of uh, fanciness maybe yeah maybe Bates is like a, almost feels like a like kind of a grab bag of like character quirks <laughs> yeah um because it's like at times he's, he's, he's like sassy at times he's very sassy at times he seems like kind of like bumbling and ineffectual and at other times he is like shockingly competent um. He reminded me a lot of spoilers for the end of the movie, I guess, but he reminded me a lot of Gene Parmesan <laughs> from Arrested <laughs> Development. Because in in the towards the end of the movie he starts disguising himself as different people. So Yeah, but he's he's yeah, he's he's fancy and British and he says stuff like whither or thither, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ginger Rogers runs upstairs, they have a a sort of tete a tete. She goes back downstairs and he he dances the dance of sleep, which is like a very quiet tap dance. Yeah, he spreads some sand on the ground. Yeah, to make a uh, almost like a drum, like a brush on a drum. It's like a very yeah. chiller tap dance. Um, but then they they have a nice. Uh, he kind of like 
not quite kidnaps her, but he like pretends to be the 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 London cabbie on a horse drawn carriage and goes to the park where she is doing equestrian stuff at the yeah. park. A lot of a lot of horse jokes thrown in thrown in here. Yes, like uh, the one that I had to write down because I loved it so. Was she? <laughs> <laughs> you probably know what I'm going for. Is she says, "What is the strange power you have over horses?" And he says, "Horsepower." <laughs> <laughs> Good joke. Good joke. But then they the it starts raining, and so they have to go to where do you, if you're in the park and it starts to rain, where do you go? Gazebo, baby. The gazebo. And so they have a nice a nice little dance at the gazebo. And it is around this point in the movie where I was like, every movie should have a dance scene in it, I feel. Like, even if it's, like, very brief, even if it's, like, two people just, like, doing a little boogie for, like, three seconds, get some dancing in every movie. Because it, I think it it can only enrich something. This, I mean, and this is where they basically, this scene is where they kind of go from... Like, ah, there's that annoying guy that lives above me to, like, actually falling in love. And it's where, like, the movie, uh, I think, really just kind of takes off and, like, the emotional stakes of the movie begin. Right, Right, because this is like, okay, clearly these two people have have great chemistry with each other. They both like each other a lot. They're dancing in the park in the rain. It's very romantic. It, It can only get better from here, which is, of course, the perfect time for a movie to throw a, a, a wrench in the works. So the the whole sort of like main kind of plot of this movie is was genuinely kind of confusing. There's a lot of like misjudgment and mistaken identity and lies and because like so yeah, the the main thing is that she she gets the impression that yeah. he is Mister Hardwick and right. and who is married who is married to a friend of of hers right. And and so she's like, "How could you?" And she she slaps him uh, yeah. or punches him right when he thinks that they've just fallen in love. Big old slap in the face. She is sort of staying in London with a um this very silly uh Italian costume designer named Bedini. And as soon as he showed up, I was like, "Chico Marx is in this movie." <laughs> yeah, doing doing broad Italian doing accent. broad Italian. Uh, uh, stereotypical accents was just a big thing in the 30s. They've seemingly like broken apart. Like this, this relationship is done. There is a, a good, a good bit where Jerry, Fred Astaire's character, is, is talking to Hardwick about it. On the Nerdist, right? Uh, Hardwick goes to goes to uh, the valet, Bates. Bates, yeah. Uh, he's, he's he 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 has a problem, and he goes, well, "Have you tried rubbing butter on it, sir?" <laughs> He goes, you can't rub a girl with butter. And he goes, my sister got... Well, that's what he said. He goes, like, oh, he's he's got... He stepped in a hornet's nest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's like, my sister got into a hornet's nest and we rubbed her with butter. <laughs> it's great bit. There's a, there's a lot of jokes in this movie also with with both Bates and also Bedini. Like, Bedini is a lot of things like he doesn't understand, like, English figures of speech. He uses a lot of like malapropisms and like doesn't un- understand like wordplay. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Bates seemingly takes everything very literally. A lot of good, like, just good, witty 30s comedy yeah. in this movie. And it would be kind of ridiculous to break down all of the plot because it, there's like, too, it's, it's too much. Because at it's this just point, it's just a lot of machinations like, of like, mis- like, 
yeah it, it kind of just springs off from that mistaken identity and it takes them the entire movie to solve it and there's just like a lot of convoluted things that stop that make it more difficult for them to yeah there's a lot of like jokes involving objects that are covering someone's face and so the person seeing them thinks it's someone else yeah there's like oh this person walked behind like a chandelier and so you can't see who it is and so they switched places and then um or like this person thinks they're dancing with one person they're actually dancing with a different person which are very fun uh there is a section where dale ginger rogers's character kind of thinks that like the hardwick couple are swingers because madge knows that she's not married to fred astaire and so when they're interacting she's like no like go go hang out with her like yeah you you you, you two kids go go crazy <laughs> and so then like they're dancing together and madge who's mrs hardwick keeps like winking at ginger rogers <laughs> she's like what the hell are you yeah doing? and he's like i thought i was dancing with your husband like what is happening she thought that it was swing time ah! <laughs> <laughs> for the for the um, listening audience and i guess anyone because we might not be on screen right now i just held up my laser disc of swing time which we'll be watching for next week right with ginger rogers and fred astaire yes Right. The, the, this whole section of the movie takes place in Venice, which is not shot in Venice. It is shot on a massive soundstage set that looks like The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at this and I was like, this is like, did, did you go to Disneyland? To shoot yes. This? Cause like, yeah, very clean. It is, very it is, like, it is absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. It is the Disneyland version of Venice. Yeah. It is like the most obvious film set ever built. <laughs> but I kind of like that about it. It's very theatrical, but in kind of a fun, goofy way yeah and speaking of of theatrical hardwick and and jerry are putting on a kind of dance review as uh mm-hmm. everybody is doing in every movie yeah. they're all putting on they're all putting on broadway shows and it gives us an opportunity for another kind of showstopper tap dance performance and singing performance from fred astaire the the titular song top hat put on your top right. hat Yes, which a lot of good tap dancing in it. I think w- during this one was when I decided that I wanted to start yeah. tap dancing. And uh, the the greatest part of it, though, is where he has like a row of other guys in tuxes tap dancing behind him. Mm-hmm. And he takes his cane and holds it up like it's a rifle and then <laughs> uses his tap shoes to go and like and like make it look like make it sound like he was shooting one of them. So he's pretending to shoot all of these backup dancers with his cane and they fall down one at a time. And then there's a point where he does a and then like moves it around like a Tommy gun, (laughs) which is another, which is a great way of showing a Tommy gun when you are not allowed to. Right. Cause at uh, this point, that's one of the production code things that you're not allowed to show. Should we it, talk it, should we talk about the like production code don'ts on this episode? Uh yeah, I think we should. I don't know if this is the spot to do it, but while we... while you look up that list, I'll just yeah. uh, finish describing the scene. So like yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's like uh it's a really kind of weird use of tap and and dancing, uh but it is one of the kind of 
dips into fantasy slightly of the i mean it all takes place diegetically but it's it's like heightened in a way mm. uh this this sequence unlike something like gold diggers this is uh this doesn't have any kind of all, all the dancing in and singing in this movie sort of like makes sense in the world and it's only like slightly heightened we're not going to like another reality like we are in in some other musicals uh to, to I mean, do our dancing scenes. i feel like this movie kind of goes back and forth almost like it is most of the dancing in it is diegetic but it almost like as a dance scene goes on it almost kind of shifts into a more dreamlike reality and then kind of comes back to the kind of more naturalistic reality of the rest of the but movie. like only slightly because it's the same sets that they're in yeah before. but like like everyone else disappears like everyone else in the room kind of goes away and they kind of enter into this like little world all of their all of their own and then once the dancing is over they kind of return which is a, a cool way of doing it i think yeah i don't know i mean is there much else to say about this movie should we just wrap it up um, and then talk about the production code cheek to cheek is a good song that i had heard before i had also heard the top hat song those are kind of the two songs in this that are probably are the most famous and i had i had definitely heard before many times yeah, I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff where Bedini is like so quick to like murder someone for for Ginger <laughs> Rogers. Out his fencing sword. He like he he has a sword and it's like she's talking to him about it's like oh I've got this problem with this guy and he's like I will murder him for you and she's like please don't. There's kind of an all is lost moment where Dale gets married to Bellini. And we're like, oh no, what's going to happen? Like, mm. this isn't like, uh, this isn't like it happened one night where she, she walks away right at yeah. the end, you know, like he, she actually got married to him. How are we going to get out of this pickle? And then, <laughs> and then we find out that our, our, uh, Jean Parmesan, uh, globe trotting master of disguise, uh, <laughs> butler, uh, actually pretended to be a priest and yeah. did not truly marry the two of them. And now they can all be happily ever after. Yep. Fun movie. I, yeah. I enjoyed it. Before we get to our next movie, let's, let's brief interlude about uh, the Hayes Code, because I want to bring up this photo, especially, which is from 1940. So we're, we're jumping the gun a little bit, I guess. But 1935 is the first year of like fully enforced Hollywood Hayes Code stuff, yeah. right? Where... Uh, Breen was kind of the guy who was like watching all the movies and like giving everyone notes and like being being real hard ass about it. Yeah, it's all it's always called the Hayes Code, and mm-hmm. Hayes had been involved since the early mid twenties, but he was more of like a lobbyist for the film industry and didn't actually care right. that much about censoring it. Where uh, this guy was Joseph Breen, I think. I believe so. Um, he uh, was actually he was part of would... the like uh, what it was like like the Catholic League or something. Right. right. He he was brought on and once he was brought on, he kind of put the hammer down and started like actually enforcing the 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 production code. The League of Decency, is that what it was called? It's something like that. Yeah. The the won't the League of Won't Someone Please Think of the Children. Yeah. But so in 1940, someone made a uh, a photograph sort of mocking the Hayes Code rules and that the Hayes Code was broken down into certain like sections there's like the don'ts the like sometimes don'ts i forget like how the, they the be carefuls it. right and so there's things like that you could kind of get away with in his code movies and there's some things like you, you could not show 
they leave some stuff off of here that is like in tons of movies and TV now, but at, um, I assume that was also not allowed. But in 1940, someone made this photo where they tried to put as much of the thou shalt nots into the photo as possible. And it just leads <laughs> to this super kick-ass awesome picture. <laughs> Forbidden under the Hayes Code are uh, law defeated. You couldn't show like the law, like police losing uh, inside of a woman's thigh or male thigh. I don't, they don't specify. Lace lingerie, a dead man, narcotics, drinking, an exposed bosom, gambling, pointing a gun, and then just a Tommy gun, which <laughs> is very specific. They're like, they're like singing out a, sp- a specific like brand of gun that you yeah. can't show. But I guess it was sort of like such a ubiquitous and kind of like romanticized. Tommy guns are a very kind of iconic, like distinctive looking object. So yeah, I guess there was some precedent for that. But so this picture has all of these things in it. And it's just uh, a, a scantily clad woman standing over a dead cop with a gun and an empty glass. And there's like a bottle behind her. We'll throw it up in a cigarette. We'll throw it up in the video. Like... <laughs> I, I think this picture rules. It goes and, hard. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to bring it up. Also, look, what an arbitrary list of things not to put in a movie. And like very focused on like crime and like how crime is presented, I think. Yeah. That seems like a big sticking point for the Hayes Code of like, you can't show the law in a bad, a bad light kind of pre-code gangster movies got, got in while the getting was good. And yeah. we haven't, we haven't yet watched any gangster movies from the postcode, but I think they're going to, I'm guessing shift away from that style of movie and get into something a little bit more. The movies that I, I'm thinking of that are like crime movies that are Hayes Code are, are more like 1940s. So, yeah. Although on my uh on my Gangsters box set that I was working off of for Little Caesar and um Public Enemy, mm-hmm. the the next one coming up was uh The Petrified Forest, which is 1936 starring Humphrey Bogart. Hey, so. we haven't talked about him yet. Maybe we that could uh, watch one. that one next week. Sounds good to me. But before we get to The Petrified Forest, let's talk about another comedy involving top yeah. hats a, a link between both of these movies is this uh using a conductor's stick as part mm. of a scene transition uh oh, like a match cut in both of these movies we have like somebody tapping on something and it cuts from that tapping to the tapping of a conductor uh, of a conductor's stick oh on, on their uh I don't know, music stage or whatever. I didn't watch these movies back to back, so I did not pick up on that. Um, yeah, weird thing that they did in both of these yeah. movies. I, like, both times I was like, whoa, crazy match cut. And it was like, wait, yeah. that's the same match cut? <laughs> yeah. A Night at the Opera is the movie that we're talking about. Oh, yes. Correct. Yes, The Night of the Opera. The, the, the Night of the Opera. The, yeah, Night of the Opera <laughs> would be a great, <laughs> a great title. Yet another Marx Brothers. But uh, notably... The first MGM Marx Brothers movie. They were previously and Zeppo. Yeah, they had previously done all their movies under Paramount, I think, and this was kind of a a a shift. And I I read afterwards on Wikipedia, so take this with a grain of salt, (laughs) that Irving Thalberg, who was the head of MGM at the time, kind of wanted uh, this movie to be a bit more kind of like cohesive. He kind of wanted to like sand the edges off of like the Marx Brothers thing like give them more structure and for there to be like 
characters that you like cared about and like followed through the story. Yeah. And how successful that is is debatable. How much that changes what this movie feels like, whatever. Yeah. The thing that I found very funny about it was the way it was worded on Wikipedia specifically was like, unlike previous Marx Brothers movies, scenes in Night at the Opera have a clear beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, I did notice when I was watching the movie that it seems like they're trying a little bit harder to make it a story, but also... I had the thought watching the movie of Marx Brothers movies are barely movies. <laughs> they're just a bunch of stuff right. happening. <laughs> they're they're a bunch of bits. And I almost feel like they might work better with less narrative. Yeah, I think that this and uh, what's the one the last one we watched? Uh uh Duck Soup. Duck Soup are like tend to be the ones that people think about the most often, that are mm-hmm. like the most famous, uh most respected. And this one's good. It's well put together, but I think that you know the 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 narrative writing is not incredible, and so like that's and the it, thing. It lets the jokes take a back seat sometimes. I and think so. Duck yeah. Soup is a lot more joke forward, and I think it works better for it. I think Duck Soup is a lot better than this. I know that I I am the the Marx Brothers, uh, <laughs> you know, unenjoyer or whatever. Yeah, but um. I like yeah, this movie, but like I was also I was also just kind of like, uh, all right, I'm done, uh, you know. <laughs> but I think I think the the intent behind sort of like stripping away some of the jokes and trying to make it more narrative forward was to kind of like make the jokes land better. Right. And I think it kind of has the opposite. Making effect. them more contextual. I think it sure, and I that I do approve of because a lot of Marx Brothers humor is like completely devoid of context and it's like this joke is just here because it's a joke and this movie at least tries to kind of put a little bit more context around stuff and also to kind of make all of the characters a little bit less anarchic i think too a little bit take the anarchy away from marx brothers but that is like it does feel like they're they're trying to make them nicer in this one like yeah particularly chico and harpo aren't like assaulting people in this as much like there's there's less sort of like outright kind of like antagonistic stuff happening outside of like a few characters so i mean this is their first mgm movie this is their mm-hmm. first movie without zeppo and this is also their first post haze code movie true and also good point this is uh this movie feels a bit more squeaky clean it feels Duck a bit more like movies. it's like it feels like they're going for more of a like family friendly yeah vibe like kid friendly even yeah like, there there's a part in this movie which they didn't do in duck soup thankfully but it harkens back <laughs> to their earlier ones the whole movie just grinds to a halt while we watch yep. them play harp <laughs> but at, at and, least this it isn't like it's like oh they're on a ship that has a band they like go and play the instruments that are already there there's a little bit right. of there's a little bit of justification for it, as opposed Slight, to in yeah. was it Animal Crackers when it's just like hard cut now, like four minutes of Harpo playing the harp, and then hard cut the movie continues. <laughs> I mean, this this still did that, but yeah, it had like a, a bit of a narrative context. But I thought crucially during those scenes, it was the two of them acting like clowns and entertaining a bunch of children. Yeah, it was all kids in the background of those scenes. And so it was them being silly on instruments, and then the kids going. <laughs> I, I did know? write. Uh, Harpo has very big, like magician slash clown at a birthday party. 
energy <laughs> in this in this movie. Yeah. Um, especially in that scene where, like, yeah, he's like playing music and you know doing his his harpo bits to a bunch of laughing children, and it's like, oh yeah, he's he's performing at a birthday party. That's what right. This and is. and to me, it felt like this is like the movie carving out who its audience is, right? Mm. Where, like yeah. like they are you're seeing yourself on screen because you are a kid laughing at the silly the silly man, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and maybe that's part of why like I don't feel. A like strong why I like I don't really enjoy Marx Brothers movies that much. It's like I didn't watch them as a kid. I've started watching Marx Brothers in my thirties, and I'm kind of like, I don't know, I don't know about these, I don't know about these <laughs> fellas. Which is like, I I like Duck Soup for sure. Like Duck Soup, I think is a fun, entertaining movie that I laughed at a bunch. But I think especially. In comparison to a lot of the, the other 30s comedies that we're watching, I'm just like, I don't know, this sort of like throwing stuff at the wall type of comedy just doesn't, I feel like when it hits, it's, it is very, very funny. But yeah. the amount of jokes that don't land, I'm just kind of like, I don't know, the, the hit rate is very low on these, I feel like. Yeah, and you know, like some of the slapstick comedy stuff could feel a little random at times, but... random. I think that uh, I think that it kind of works better in that medium, uh, the the kind of out of nowhere nature of it. Mm. And now that we have like other 30s comedies to compare them to, like the, the other comedies that are coming out of the 30s, rather than being the sort of like talking uh, continuation of the silent clown established mm-hmm. established status quo. Uh, we have these other 30s movies that are very dialogue-y um, and very, like, situation comedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think they work really well, and they work better than the Marx Brothers stuff. Yeah. I don't even know if this format existed in 1935, but I feel like if the Marx Brothers are doing, like, sketch comedy, it would be great. Because I feel like yeah. that's that's kind of what Duck Soup feels like. Yeah, it's a. It, fe- right. it feels more like a sketch comedy where it's like there's like a very very bare bones narrative to it, but it's like just enough to kind of carry you ahead of like, and now a bunch of stuff happens, <laughs> and now for something completely different. I mean, sure. the uh, the Marx Brothers right in, in in their narrative attempts are kind of failing at making Holy Grail when they should be making Meaning of Life, right? Right, I I guess right. You sure? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, I think that Groucho does a lot is he will sort of make asides as if he's speaking to an audience, but yeah. it's not it's not to camera. He'll just kind of like lean over his shoulder and be like, "Take get a lot of this over here." I mean, sometimes it's to camera, but but rarely he's got, a, he's got a lazy eye, so it's hard and to it, tell. It, it almost feels like he should be doing like the full flea bag where he like stares right down the barrel and he's just like, "Get a lot of this." But it does, it, right? It's like, it's not quite, again, this is hindsight, but I feel like there are like more contemporary comedy things that are, that are sort of like all bits without a lot of narrative to them that are like, we're just going to do sketch comedy stuff, like Portlandia or something. I feel like if Marx Brothers were on Portlandia, <laughs> they'd kill it. <laughs> right. And some are just Groucho and the other, like, and the other ones are just Harpo and Chico, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I also think like if, because I feel like the the Groucho making asides to an audience feels like a thing that came out of their stage stuff, where he would just mm. like 
<laughs> make jokes to the audience. Yeah. And I've, I've sort of like, hey, audience, like, check this out. And I feel like well, if yeah, they... Breaking the fourth wall is still pretty rare in movies, but it's, you know, there is a more visible yeah. fourth wall when you're on the stage. But it's like, I feel like they're not committing to it enough at this point, where it's like, if he's going to do that, he should be, like, staring at the camera and, like, directly addressing a movie audience. Right. And that, because it's that thing where it's like, it's not quite, it's like stuck between two, like, mediums almost. Hmm. We haven't said a, th- a thing about what happens <laughs> I know, in this yeah. movie. As for this movie, it's like a, the standard thing where they're in an environment full of rich people yeah. and they are silly. There's a couple, okay, loca- this one moves, it goes from like an opera house to a boat to an opera house, I guess. It's, it's yeah, no longer yeah. like a single room almost. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it feels higher budget than the other ones. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, bigger bigger sets, more people. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this movie. I like it. It's it's fun. It's just like another Marx Brothers movie. I was hoping for more. I think after Duck Soup, I was like, ooh, okay. Like, now they're, 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 they're progressing. Like, they're getting better. And I feel like this one, in some ways, does feel like a progression from that one. But often in kind of the wrong direction. In that it's like, let's do less jokes overall and kind of like put more emphasis on like the narrative and like the side, the side characters and like the kind of romantic subplot and that kind of thing. And I'm like, no one watches Marx Brothers movies for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they, they, the, the role that usually goes to Zeppo, they had to cast, they, they they have their formula, right? Right. Like, there is still a Zeppo character in this. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> There's a Zeppo character who is a pretty boy who does nothing, uh, yeah. and that's Ricardo in this movie. The most boring movie character in anything. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, he's in love and he sings. There's a part where it stops to listen to him sing. He's pretty good at it. Uh, and then uh, he, he ends up with the lady at the yeah. end. The end. That's yeah. the story. But it's like the the supporting cast in this movie is, are both not as funny as the Marx Brothers, and also not as good actors as in like the supporting cast of like like other than Margaret Dumont, who I think is very good at her shtick in Marx Brothers She's movies. Done it a million times now, right? I I think that she has less to do in this movie though. Like kind she, of, like, yeah. They don't they don't get to play off of her as much mm-hmm. in this one. There are some some very good. There's like. The, the scene where they're all like piling into a tiny cabin on the boat and there's yeah. this like absurd amount of people who are all inside this tiny room and they're all like climbing over each other. Good bit. There's a um, where they're in a hotel room and there's a detective who's trying to like arrest them and they keep moving the beds around while he's looking and gaslighting him <laughs> into thinking that he's going insane. It's another, and it's also another one of their bits where there are two rooms and they're going back and forth between them yeah. in, in a zany way. But it's sort of like there is a, there is like a, a punchline to it. It isn't just them running between two rooms like it was in the coconuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of like trapeze stuff with Harpo at the end where he's like swinging around on ropes. I don't know That's how much of that, cool. I don't know how much of that is actually Harpo doing it. But he's, he, he's like probably pushing 50 at this point. So but maybe it's, not. But it's very cool. And like all like the trapeze things and like lifting and lowering backdrops on an opera stage. The kind of third act like showcase set piece um, is very good. 
Yeah, yeah. I it's uh they they use the you know they use the the staging well in those late scenes. They have the classic bit of somebody's got to get hit in the head with a sandbag, right? Oh, of course. It, it, it must happen. <laughs> yeah. So and so it does. It happens pretty and, early too. They like they get it out of the way like don't worry. We know we're we're going to give you someone getting hit in the head with a sandbag. <laughs> I think that they're like as we've watched the the formula of all of these Marx Brothers movies. I think there is a there's a reading of it of like speaking to the feelings of people who are living through the depression, mm. where they're just they're like, show, all show about, us something silly, please. Well, no, but they're all set in like high society, right? Mm. Like these are it is all these movies are about people about a bunch of people who are engaged in a bunch of fancy person shenanigans who mm. have millions of dollars and uh and they are still flaunting their wealth even during the depression right they're still living as rich people uh during the depression and then the marx brothers come in to just ruin their time <laughs> right? it's it's this like cathartic thing for the poor people watching the movie to have the marx brothers come in and mess around with rich people and be this kind of annoying presence to all of them yeah yeah which which i i can never i can get behind that for sure and i i, I do like how that is like so much of their formula is like look at these snooty assholes we're just gonna like, like drop buckets of water on their heads and steal their shoes. There is a bunch of the stuff on the boat, and it made me think like, what was boat travel like in 1935? It's played for comedy that there's like a buffet full of like spaghetti and like full chickens that they're giving it's like people. It's like a cruise ship, basically. Yeah. Now nowadays, uh, uh, Groucho and or Chico and Harpo would be gallivanting amongst the uh, the water slides and <laughs> and uh, and Mickey Mouse's on a Disney cruise. Someone someone make that movie. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to our action double feature? Yeah, let's do it. Speaking of uh, filmmakers that we have uh, talked about previously, Alfred Hitchcock has got a new picture: The Thirty Nine Steps. You're obsessed with these, <laughs> obsessed to an unhealthy degree with these, <laughs> these unhealthy ways. <laughs> no, I just I want the conversation to flow nicely. That's true. Yeah. Okay. When it works, all of them have been clumsy this episode. But when they're <laughs> when they work, they work very well. Maybe that's why I've been feeling it. I'm like, do we need to have a segue if we, we take we like really a minute don't. and a yeah. half to build up to them? <laughs> <laughs> the Thirty Nine Steps, Alfred Hitchcock. It's another kind of like spy thriller, yeah, sort of spy adventure movie, like. Ordinary man gets caught up in in intrigue. I like this. I like this one a lot. Yeah, I I seen this one before, and I think I remember liking it more than mm. I did this time. I feel like this time I was like, oh yeah, Third Amp Steps. That movie's great, and I was like, mm, it's pretty good. I think it's better than The Man Who Knew Too Much. It, yeah, I, it's, it I feels like a more it feels like a more confidently made movie. There are aspects of The Man Who Knew Too Much that feel a little rough around the edges, and mm-hmm. this one feels like quite polished as a film i don't know i think it works it works really well uh it's a different kind of story it doesn't have the kind of like tonal weirdness of the man who knew too much yeah uh where it's like your main character is telling his daughter to buzz off and <laughs> shut up all the time <laughs> shut up you yeah the, the the character in this is kind of 
more of a kind of uh, a, a a rakish gentleman. He's sort of he's more what of is, a. What does that mean? I don't know. Like he he's like I don't know. He's he's a very typical like action movie protagonist. I feel like which is like he's an ordinary guy, but he can like he he can yeah. fight when he needs to, and he like ladies like him and he 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 drops a few one-liners here and there he just feels like a very kind of bruce willis type yeah if bruce willis was uh canadian and had an english accent and a a pencil mustache wait a pencil mustache did i just was that mustache such a pencil that i didn't even notice a little mustache didn't he nice little 30s mustache oh yeah he does that's right It, it works for him i think it works for him so well that i didn't think about it I think a thing that I probably like chafed against more rewatching this movie is like the whole man on the run with a woman that he's kidnapped stuff didn't uh-huh. play as charmingly as I remember it being. <laughs> like I, I feel I like the movie like the really it really plays up the fact that she is like does not want to be there and is afraid and is very uncomfortable and he's like I'll be fine don't worry I might be a murderer you don't know and it's like. I, this is being played very comedically, and it, it, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I guess, you know, I, I, I was saying that it was less tonally inconsistent than the other one, but maybe it's just because it worked for me. Because, like, I thought that it it's kind of a 20, 30-minute delving into a romantic comedy kind of, like, worked pretty well for me. Uh, maybe it's the fact that I just watched uh, It Happened One Night, which is kind of a similar premise of, like, Man and woman yeah. who are like on the run and like dodging the cops, kind of. Yeah, and and it's, it's and not falling as... for each other at the same time, and it's like that movie is so charming, and in this, it's like it feels so much, kind of like meaner, I guess, in a in a, a less yeah. fun way. Yeah, um, in a more of a Hitchcock way, where he's just like, mm, "This is creepy." I mean, I don't know if I've seen Hitchcock do comedy anywhere else. No, I mean. I don't know. I feel like he he doesn't really make like comedies, but I feel like his his like spy movies tend to have this are totally more like this. Maybe I'm just thinking of North by Northwest, which is like hmm. the his sort of magnum opus of the like ordinary man gets involved in spy intrigue movies. Because that movie is like I don't want to say that movie's perfect, but that movie is like less less couple times I've seen it, I'm just like no notes. This movie's great, <laughs> incredible. Oh, yeah. But also, it's, it's like, you got Cary Grant exploding charm across the screen, so it's like, it's hard to go wrong. Nothing against the guy in this movie, who I do think is pretty good. Yeah, I think I think it's a fun angle that they are um, handcuffed together the entire mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, they, they get some good bits out of that. The, the setup is great. Like, it's it's more the, like, it, it is maybe just like a tonal thing where I'm, there are some times where I'm like, this is being played, like, in a very comedic way, and it's like, the situation is, like, genuinely kind of terrifying. For one of these people, there are some like really amazing like Hitchcock, like reveals and or just like filmmaking flourishy things in this. Like mm-hmm. right away, our our lead guy didn't write his name down. I should write that stuff, but I don't. <laughs> I I sometimes do, but I didn't remember to this time. Our action man is at like a Richard Richard Hannay. Richard Hannay is at a sort of uh, he's at a music hall. Which we see in giant, giant reveal of like letters across the screen. Musical at a very uh, rowdy like magic show, where a guy is uh, reciting like stuff a from memory. Vaudeville variety kind of thing. Right. I wrote down, Mister Memory is a terrible magician because his whole thing is that he just remembers things and tells them to people. 
Yeah, there's a guy in uh, I haven't I haven't experienced him yet, but there's a guy over in Boulder, Colorado, uh, half an hour away from me. He um he's a busker who appears on the street in Boulder a lot of the time, and he knows every zip code and he knows facts mm. about every zip code. So you can tell him a zip code and he'll tell you about your hometown. Oh. Is he so, per- is he perhaps being used by uh, foreign agents to steal state secrets in whoa. the form of zip codes? <laughs> I mean, maybe a modern day <laughs> Mr. Memory. <laughs> yeah. But so uh, Mr. Hannay runs afoul to uh, this woman, Annabella, who tells him this whole story of how she is trying to stop a spy plot from happening. And it sounds very much like a con. She's like, hey, like, give me money and you know i'll you can be involved in spy stuff well he he doesn't he's like i don't believe you <laughs> but but you can you can he's like playing along but he's like fine you can sleep on the couch and then she busts into the room in the middle of the night with a knife in her back which is a, a really nice nice reveal yeah and forces him to go on the run otherwise he will get blamed for murder and she's told him that the the head of the enemy spy ring is missing one of his fingers. Um, that's how you, you'll be able to tell who he is. He's like running from the police and there's a guy who goes, what's all this? Um, I love this it. Is... I love it when British guys say, what's all this? Yeah. Right. Cause it's like, you think it's just a, they did it. A, a they did it in uh, invisible. They man, did it in, right? in invisible man too. Yeah. yeah. But there's, there's a thing where there's like, there's spies following him and he has to get a guy to like, let him go. And he's like, oh, there's those guys over there. They're spies. They're following me. And the guy's like, I, I don't believe you. And he's like, all right, you know what the truth is, is that I slept with this lady and that's her husband across the street. And he's trying to catch me. And he's like, oh, in that case, go right ahead. Carry on. <laughs> he's staying in a hotel in this scene and he's kind of like leaving the hotel. And there's a really, a really fun part. Also kind of getting it like a weird, a weird comedy of this movie mm. where like a housekeeper walks into the apartment and finds the body and then she screams and the scream as soon as she screams it cuts to the train of him leaving and uh it, and, and so she screams in the form of the train whistle yeah as it transitions to the next scene incredible which is like so good so weird so funny yeah it's basically the opening scene from dress from the lost world Jurassic right Park but it's like i think I don't necessarily know if this is the first instance of like that being used as an editing trick. I mean, early sound certainly. But I think this is a notable enough use of it that things like Spielberg in The Lost World or um Ridley Scott in um what's that movie? The House of Gucci, which I haven't seen, but I've seen just there's one little bit where Jared Leto screams and it's a car horn. I'm, I, I would not surprise me if either or both of those are sort of like direct kind of riffs on on that bit from this movie. Oh, yeah, it must be. But it's, it's, it's so, great. It's, like, I, it's I'm so not, immediately after watching that, I'm like, I got to put that in something. That's that's too good. <laughs> it's too good. <laughs> I got to find some way of making money off of this. But while he's on the train, he's running from the police and he does the, the, the classic forcibly kiss a woman to hide from the police trick. Yeah. Um. Which then hilariously, she immediately is like, "Hey, police, over here! This guy is a criminal." That's a great. It's a great thing. I mean, I think I, I think that whole dynamic works a little better for me 
rather than feeling like this kind of gross, you know, misogynistic thing, because she doesn't play along, you know, mm, like, right. like in a normal movie, in in many movies, in many stories, like she would get wrapped up and she would be like, ah, you're charming. I'm going to help you out. I'll trust you for a second, you know, but right, in this movie, yeah. she's just like, no, get, get out of here. Get away from me. <laughs> He's like, please, please just don't give me up. It's it's it, like, it's life or death. You don't yeah. understand. There's spy stuff happening. She's like, whatever, man. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Hitchcock is very good at this sort of thing where it's like, they're running through the train and they go through like the, the, the kitchen car and there's like a waiter with a bunch of dishes that they have to like push past and like get around and not spill the dishes. And then they run into a train car that's full of dogs and there's like dogs in the their dog way. Car. Yeah. <laughs> Every train is dog car. And it culminates in this, like, really cool, uh, like, chase scene, almost, of, like, him getting on the side of the train and, like, and while it's moving. And, yeah. like, climbing along the side of the train while it crosses a bridge. Which is, like, uh, any movie with, like, a chase on a train, like, people, like, running around and on top of a train... It's yeah, Snowpiercer. <laughs> Snowpiercer, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1... Transporter um. <laughs> 2. <laughs> Transporter 3. Right, he got a map from Annabella leading to Scotland. So he knows, he knows he has to go somewhere in Scotland to prevent these vague state secrets from getting out. Very Again, very classic Hitchcock thing of like, what are they after? State secrets. What are they? Who cares? <laughs> classic MacGuffin thing. I don't even know if Hitchcock had... I don't know if he came up with the term MacGuffin or not. But he was, he's definitely the person I think I most associate that with, of like mm -hmm. a, a plot device that you don't actually need to know anything about. It doesn't matter. Oh. It, the bad I guys thought a MacGuffin, I thought a MacGuffin was like a guy that's really good <laughs> at combining everyday objects. I don't know, that's a MacGyver. <laughs> oh, that was so dumb. So, so he, he arrives at, he's kind of following this map, trying to figure out what his spy deal is, and he arrives at this small farmhouse and he pays the guy to the guy that lives there to stay the night mm -hmm. a, a suspicious scottish farmer and his horny wife <laughs> and it becomes very clear also they're they're weird religious you know <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he uh he he comes in they're like okay join us for join us for supper and he's like we're saying grace right now and uh it's this this moment that i don't know that scoffs at religion in a way that i would not have expected an mm. older movie to do it's very like the movie is very much like you the audience are on the side that like this guy's being weird right now yeah. like with, although with it's his... it's probably worth pointing out since this is a a british movie it is not yeah. under the Hayes code yes but it has been approved by the british censors right yeah the the horny wife lets him escape when the cops are, are, are able I, I did to find, find that kind of funny that it's like the Scottish farmer is like immediately very suspicious that it's like this guy is like making eyes at my wife and it's like oh they're plotting something against me or whatever and it's like no they're actually just like trying to you know she's like here have, have some blankets and some soup or whatever but then it's like as it goes on kind of because he's being such an asshole about it the wife is like you actually seem cool I kind of like you more than my mean old husband here take his coat and escape my, my mean husband take, who's take me with six you six times older than me yeah um yeah she like very kind of like longingly says goodbye to him when he when he escapes the house as the cops yeah, are closing like, in i won't forget this 
Right. Thank you. And um, goodbye. So he he get he takes the farmer's coat, which looks like a really nice coat. I want that coat. Um, a lot of great coats a, in this. That's movie. a U.S. coat. <laughs> yeah, it is. And he's running through the the Scottish Highlands when our old pal an, an auto gyro shows up. When I saw this, I screamed out, "Auto gyro!" <laughs> <laughs> the second '30s movie to feature an auto gyro that we've talked about. Which is funny that I did not. I knew auto gyros were like were a thing in the '30s, but I didn't expect them to be so ubiquitous yeah i mean i think the only movies that i've seen them in are this it happened one night and the road warrior <laughs> right or the rocketeer which isn't a real one i don't think but um hmm. he he finally gets to the, like the the house he's looking for and they come in they're like oh like oh we know who you are like come on in like and he's like oh finally like people who understand the situation i'm in like everything is cool and he comes in like sits down in this nice library with this guy and he's like the guy clearly knows what's going on, and it's like, hey, like, hey, just sit down, like, have it, you take take a load, like, we'll send the police away. Don't worry about it. You're safe. And it's like, oh, oof, oof. and then it's like, oh, I met this lady. She told me about all the spy stuff and to watch out for a guy with a missing finger on his on his on his left hand. And he's like, oh, you mean like this? And he holds up his hand. He's missing the <laughs> finger. And it's like, oh, so that, <laughs> that's that moment is so good. It's yeah. such an amazing like, oh, shit. moment. Yeah. You know? And it's a great example of like Hitchcock being very good at that type of thing. Intense sort of like tension and suspense yeah. and all the things that he's famous for. So then he's got to now he's got to like escape from this place too. in addition to the police. He gets shot. But in a classic movie moment, he's got a book in his pocket that stops the bullet. Yeah, a Bible, no less. Yeah. Well, what else? What else is thick enough to stop a bullet? And it's it's the Bible that he got from the jacket right. of the weird religious See, guy. It all it all connects. He like goes to the police, and the police don't believe him. And he he like runs into a room, uh, where there's like a political speech happening, and he like pretends to be involved in this like speech and goes up and yeah, is like he, talking he gets in front in of there bunch of people. He gets in there and he's just, they're all just like, "Oh, th- you're finally here. Great." Yeah. <laughs> they, they just shove him up on stage. And it's this really funny scene where he has to kind of like bullshit his way through a speech yeah. for a as someone who he doesn't know, he doesn't right. know who he is. I had forgotten the scene was in here and it might be my favorite scene in the movie of like <laughs> the thing where it's like he can see the people People he's running away from, like coming in the back of the room, yeah. And he, like you, you can, like his eyes are glancing around, but he he has to keep just like improving, making up a speech and like sound like he's saying something without knowing anything about what he's supposed to be talking about. It's really good writing. It's like it's it's him, yeah, trying to say like intentionally vague stuff, uh, right? That that gets the crowd on his side. <laughs> yeah, right. He gets kind of picked up by the spy people again and and uh handcuffed to the the woman that he tried to tried to recruit to his cause earlier that immediately sold him out. There's a really cool like camera transition here where like they're in the back of a car and the camera's in the back of the car and it kind of like moves like to the window and there's a hidden cut so it looks like the camera's moving out of the back window of the car. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's so good. It's like very seamlessly done. It's like you can tell what they're doing. That it's like they're kind of like hiding a cut in camera movement, but it's mm-hmm. it's very slick. But then sheep are on the street, and they escape. And now the rest of the movie is kind of like him and this woman are handcuffed and have to like 
are on the run together and have to like pretend hijinks. pretend to <laughs> pretend to be married and to like go to a hotel and she's like kind of trying to escape while they're doing that and like he's like pretending there's a gun in his pocket yeah it's, it's actually like... a pipe but then it's like while they're asleep he uh she like slips out of the handcuffs and goes downstairs and and overhears some of the like the the enemy agents talking looking for them yeah she doesn't believe his story it she thinks yeah. that he's just you know making it up to try and justify whatever he's doing right which then he responds to be like well if i'm not on the run from spies that means i'm a murderer so it's like if you prefer like, that you prefer? <laughs> yeah i i get what these this like rom-com section of the movie is going for but I, I think it's just not, it's not quite charming enough to work for me entirely. It's like, it's, it's like too creepy by a hair. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get it. I think some of that might just be Hitchcock being a, 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 a weird pervy creep, which like in some of his movies is like kind of enriches the movie because it adds this weird, this like voyeurism and this like yeah. playful kind of like meanness to it. But I feel like. This stuff, I don't know. It's just, it's a little too, I don't know. My par- my partner was pointing out that like this, like two people who are supposed to fall in love get or or hate each other or whatever get handcuffed to each other thing is yeah. like a a con- an extremely common trope in like fan fiction, right? Oh, really? And like, <laughs> and and like. You know, if you're thinking about Hitchcock in that kind of pervy way, then it's like, oh, maybe like this, there is a reason why he's doing this. <laughs> I mean, because there's a lot of there's a lot of bits, not bits, but just like scenes where it's like they're they're at the hotel and it's like she's trying to take her stockings off to dry them on the fire. And he's like, let me help you with that. And it's like, dude, this like she's already handcuffed to you. Like, <laughs> It is it is kind of a funny scene of her like struggling to like her struggling to get her stockings off while she has a handcuff on and mm-hmm. his hand is just kind of like limp next to hers while <laughs> she's like moving it up and down her leg. Like I I think Hitchcock wants this stuff to be like a little bit titillating and I I don't think it it is for me anyway. But um it's just yeah, it's it's slightly too creepy. Yeah. This movie ends with confrontation back at the next Mr. Memory show where they have uh, finally like convinced some sort of authority figures to go along with them. Is that is that mm-hmm. what happens? Yeah. And uh, they're able to catch this transmission of information in, in the act. So the, the spy organization that's selling these state secrets is called the 39 Steps. And so Mr. Memory is being used to transmit this information. So when Mr. Memory goes up on stage, the guy, the Canadian guy, uh, our main character, yeah. uh, he starts like, yelling, tell me about the, Hannah, yeah. He tells me, uh, he, he says like, tell me about the 39 steps. Like, what are the 39 steps? And you see the, uh, the villainous uh, nine-fingered man. <laughs> Who is a, a great villain, let me point out. Like, yeah, I forget yeah. that actor's name, but he's he's very good. And he realizes that the jig is up. He shoots Mr. Memory uh, mm-hmm. and runs away. And uh, 
Hannah like gets up to Mr. Memory and is like, what are the secrets? What were you going to give them? And then he says like, you're going to, you're going to release me of my duties. It's okay. And then he says, yes. And so he starts saying like, like kind of reading off like military airplane specs. Yeah. It's like airplane plans or something like that. Right. It's like some kind of vague airplane technology that is kind of he is memorized and is then going to transmit to the the enemy yeah part of the whole idea with the the spy intrigue is like they're trying to get these make sure these secrets don't get out of the country but like they haven't been written down anywhere and like Mm -hmm. there's there's no way that they can be taken away and like they have their hands on the secrets, so like yeah. how could they? It's like get we, we have we have the secret plans like locked away, like no one's taken them. Uh, yeah, and it turns out that it was it was Mister Memory who was yeah. going to get all the information out of the out of the city. I also think it's country. it's it's kind of interesting that this this takes the kind of Top Gun approach where like it never specifies who like the enemy agents are or like who they're working for. It's just like mm-hmm. some. Like, foreign power is, like, after Britain's state secrets. And I feel like it might be, like, I don't know how forward-thinking they were in 1935 about, like, Nazis being warmongers. I think they had an idea, though. They're like, well, they're rearming. This this seems bad. What what other militarized nation would Britain have been, like, afraid of in 1935, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Italy, I, think I guess, a lot of them or Spain were, were wary of the communists of the Soviet Union. Yeah, but true. It's not like it was. It it no, very it easily could be a, a stand-in for them. Yeah, but it's like yeah, every character in this just has an, an English accent. Like they they don't try to. They're very vague. Except about the it. original spy who he meets at the beginning, she has a kind of foreign accent. Yeah, but I think specifically says that like she's like a mercenary, right? Like she she yeah. works for she, Britain. She no, she said she works for whoever pays her the most, and right. Britain pays her the most yeah. now. But I, I I like that a bit. I like how it's sort of like Hitchcock knows to be. What are the state secrets? Who cares? Like who's the bad guys? They're the bad guys. Like don't worry about it. Because <laughs> I think at least at least in this movie, I think it works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, speaking of British people, mm. speaking of of uh, action pictures. Or a sort of like adventure movie. Not really action movies. Adventure movies. We're going to talk about Captain Blood. Captain yes. Blood. What a title. Which is our our first uh, Michael Curtiz picture. Who's a pretty yeah. notable director. Of, of Casablanca fame. Yeah. I was like reading up a little bit. I knew a little bit about Michael Curtiz. I didn't quite realize like how prolific he was. Mm-hmm. Back in the 1910s, he worked on... The Danish movie Atlantis, which we watched. Oh, nice! Oh, yeah, I think um, I remember. Us I think we remember because he's credited under his uh, his Hungarian name, which I I I have written down. I'm not going to try to say it because I'm not going to do it justice. I'm just going to call him Michael Curtiz. <laughs> he changed his name twice. Once when he was like very young, and then once when he uh, immigrated to uh, the states and kind of Americanized his name. But yeah, he made like a bunch of movies throughout Europe in the 1910s and 20s in like in in Hungary, in uh, Denmark, and he, he did a couple for Ufa in Germany, and then the 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 Warner Brothers, the actual brothers, uh, kind of poached him 
Yakko like, and Wacko. Come, come make movies in Hollywood. And so uh, I think some point in like the late 20s, he, he made the jump. This is also the first, I mean, the first Errol Flynn like vehicle, really. Yeah, he was a pretty new star at this point. Yeah. And he, uh, this is his first leading role, I yeah. believe. And he, it definitely feels like he is the kind of, the movie heir to uh, Douglas Fairbanks in terms of like, a a charming rogue who does swashbuckling yeah. things. <laughs> I, I think Fairbanks is uh, more charismatic, though. I also do, but I I do think Errol Flynn is good at his own version of it. Yeah, and is I feel like Errol Flynn is like such a kind of like classic old Hollywood figure almost. Mm-hmm. He's like, guy oh, he's the guy with the mustache who like does sword fight movies. Yeah, more or less. He's who the the villain of the Rocketeer is based on, right? The it's sort of a like a almost almost foppish, but in a in a rogue in a roguish tough way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Debonair. This is, I mean, Douglas Fairbanks made a pirate movie, The Black Pirate, that we did not watch. But it's like this feels like a Douglas Fairbanks movie in terms of like the tone of it, kind of what it's trying to, the type of movie that it's trying to be, but yeah. because it's made. In the mid adventure movie, yeah, it it does definitely have a, a different sort of uh, uh, feel to it because it's it's a sound movie and it's it just has it has more of a like kind of like classical Hollywood feeling than the kind of like silent movie wackiness that yeah it's a bit more um, plotty than a Fairbanks movie could be being mm-hmm. silent yeah but yeah it's a uh... It's about a, a smarmy doctor <laughs> who... A very smug doctor. <laughs> this is my favorite thing about the movie, is that it's called Captain Blood. It's about a pirate captain whose name is Captain Blood. That is not his pirate name. That is just his actual... He's just a man named Dr. Peter Blood. Well, hello, I'm Dr. Peter Blood. That just happens to then become a pirate captain. Like, with a name like that, he was it was destined. Like, what other, oh, yeah. you know... If your name is Peter Blood, you're going to do some pirate stuff. And you live during pirate times. It's like, it's out of your hands at that point. <laughs> this is this is farther ahead in the movie. But like, speaking of pirate times, there's a lot of fun, but kind of clunky pirate lingo in this. Mm, <laughs> like, where yeah, yeah. Errol Flynn, who is Australian... Is, is saying right. he's he's Australian, but speaking in an English accent, and his character is supposed to be Irish. Yes, right, exactly. And he says he says stuff like, "Come on, my hearties!" Uh, yeah, come <laughs> on, my hearties! Let's go. He, I guess he's he's kind of going for like a, a mid Atlantic dialect. I don't know. He kind of just yeah. has like m- movie star speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like, that's kind of how I would describe Errol Flynn just as a presence is like eh, a movie star guy. Like, he's he's very pretty. Like, he's good at doing like stunt stuff. And like, he has a, a kind of an, a, a certain sort of innate charm to him. But at the same time, there is a kind of like, he's much more. It feels like he's putting on a, a performance more than I think, like, yeah. um, Douglas Fairbanks was. It feels a little bit more labored. Also, like a movie star, he um, goes to uh, William Randolph Hearst parties and has his own mansion with, <laughs> with, uh, with like secret peepholes in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
with <laughs> secret peepholes and two-way mirrors so yeah. that he can watch people in, in his guest bedroom. Errol Flynn, probably not the best guy in real life. Probably, seemingly based on the fact that he has a mansion with peepholes in it, a real creepy perv and kind of a, a bad dude. Maybe takes the cake from Hitchcock. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like him and Hitchcock got along well. I feel like they 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 did a lot of giggling about the creepiness they were both involved in. I you know at least Hitchcock is self aware. Hitchcock, right? Hitchcock is horny on Maine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hitchcock isn't. Uh, Hitchcock likes to make movies about peepholes, but he'll just look right at you instead of <laughs> looking through. And now for the peephole, yeah, he'll, I mean, he'll just like fully just open a door and stare at you. Uh, I mean, I think that Vertigo is Hitchcock calling himself out on in in many in many ways, and yeah, uh, yeah, and so I think maybe that awareness, you know, it's the first step. It's the first step toward right uh, rectifying your your shady behavior. <laughs> uh, apparently, Errol Flynn, being a, a sort of relative relatively unknown actor at the time, he got he was cast in this. Um, he got the part after uh, Robert Donat. Donat, who is the guy from the 39 Steps, who plays um, the lead in that, Hannah mm. A, uh, turned it down. Because he, he had also done The Count of Monte Cristo, another like swashbuckling sword movie. Both Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, who's also in this, this is like their first big movie, and their first big movie together. They, they kind of went on to do a, a bunch more like, they're like a frequent on-screen pairing. And uh, this is the second Captain Blood movie. There was an, an earlier 1920s silent Captain Blood also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right off the bat, this movie, I was taken with how, kind of like Bride of Frankenstein, how like expressionistic the sets were, at least in the opening scene. They kind of lose that after this brief opening. But like early on, there's a lot of like, there's like a, a crazy like street sign that's like, Almost looks like, looks like an arrow oh, that's like pointing true. towards the house and yeah. things, and it's it's very it's very moody and expressionistic early on, and then it kind of loses that and becomes like we're on a pirate ship with a very obvious painted sky behind it, <laughs> which as fake as that stuff looks, it's I find it very charming because it 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 looks like it looks like Hook, or I should say Hook looks like this movie. Oh yeah, it's good, and like also like <laughs> there are there are parts where they're blowing up real ships too. Dude, the the ship to ship combat movie in this movie yeah. rules. The, yeah. the all the like ships fighting, amazing. Like there are like genuine like sailing scenes with humongous pirate ships. I think, and then they. I think are... some of them are are like bigatures. They're like not full scale. Oh, interesting. Because looking at the water, the water looks a little scaled down. You know. I see. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, like, special effects in this movie, the, like, sort of in-camera stuff. I don't know if there's a lot of, like, optical things in this. There's a couple, like, rear projection things, it looks like. But, yeah, this movie looks great. Yeah. Looks expensive. <laughs> yes, it looks extremely expensive. The first half of this movie, I am not a huge fan of. It definitely it's... picks up a lot more once he actually becomes a pirate. Right, because it's like Captain Blood. It's a pirate movie about this guy being a pirate. He doesn't become a pirate till halfway through. <laughs> it's like, which is it going to be a pirate movie late. yet? <laughs> yeah. The first half is him getting... Uh, so he gets imprisoned by the, the wicked English king for um, 
providing aid as a doctor to a wounded rebel. And he's like, but I, I've taken a Hippocratic Oath. I must I must save anyone who comes into my home. Captain Blood is a very, uh, what's the right word? Not smug. There's a better one. He's like he's self-righteous. Very self-righteous, exactly. To the point where it's like a little silly. <laughs> he's like this very honorable guy who, you know, he's, he's among other kind of, uh, after he's taken in, uh, along with a bunch of other kind of rebels to, I don't know, whatever kind of civil conflict was happening in Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. During pirate times. The other people are like genuine criminals, but he is the nice one. He is, uh, he's the one who is taken in for being too good of a guy. (laughs) Right. They're like, they're, they're they're all in court and everyone's like, ah, yes, I guilty, I guilty. And he's like, I am innocent. I, and he like gives a whole big speech whenever he's like remotely called out for being like, a criminal or a bad guy who like gives a speech and it's like <laughs> he's always like he's a very like morally superior character i feel like which i think the movie's intention is for him to be like a very likable protagonist that like you can get behind but it's like he does it so much that it's like shut up dude come on <laughs> yeah yeah like think- let let this guy be a little bit of a rogue like let him be and he does like that's almost i feel like kind of his arc is he kind of learns to be a bit more of a uh, a roguish hero as opposed to such a kind of morally righteous one right as he becomes a pirate and realizes that ba- basically it's a story about people becoming so ostracized and marginalized by society that they have no choice but to mm-hmm. become criminals yeah but they do it in a cool way which is being pirates yeah well and then and then they save the day at the end and yes. therefore justify themselves being pirates um, and also, they're the cool pirates. All those other pirates are nasty. They have a, they have a, they have <laughs> they, a, they have a code. They have the the guidelines. <laughs> they have their own little pirate constitution. <laughs> yeah, they have the the uh, what is it called in Pirates of the Caribbean? The like I don't, I don't know. I think it's just called the pirate code, right? What is it called in One Piece? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the first half is like a lot of Doctor Blood who I'll, I'll refer to him as that for the first half of the movie um, is sold into slavery in Port Royal. And he gets bought by uh, Arabella Bishop played by Olivia de Havilland. Who's the niece of this awful slave owner, plantation owner guy, Arabella being a like, Related to him, like, it's the sort of thing where it's like, she is also technically a slave owner, and yet she's kind of like a, supposed to be a heroic character, but whatever. Well, she's, she's, the she buys one. Dr. Blood as like a sex slave, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and he like, I mean, kind of, but he, he also just resents her for it, right? She's like, trying to do a nice thing. She, she, she's like, right. he, she's like, this man is handsome. Let me buy him. Yeah. The start of any great romance. And yeah, so he has a a beef with her for having bought him. <laughs> I mean, understandably so. Yeah. And so he's not very grateful for her, her kind of sparing him from the other buyer who would have brought him to toil away in the mines. Yeah. Um, this movie does have a, a very kind of like classically old Hollywood, like romantic streak through it. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, I think, like, Peter Blood's, like, moral kind of righteousness. And it also, the kind of, the romantic subplot with him and Arabella is, like, is so, I don't want, it's, like, it's melodramatic, but it's also, like, every time they're together, there's this, like, you know, like, 
<laughs> tinkly like a, music. Yeah, like a soft filter over everything. And it's like all of all of the dialogue is like so like flowery and he's like I could I would never have thought that a devil could have an angel for a niece. It's all like so dramatic and like you know, in in that kind of but in a in a way that I found very entertaining. Yeah, it's fun. I don't know if it's like good, but it's <laughs> <laughs> Well, that I th- I think the second half is good. Yeah. Like the second half rules. The first yes. half is like a bit of a drag because it's like this story about like slavery and and like escape and 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 fixing a the the governor's bad gout on his foot. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of gout jokes. Right. There. It's like it's a story about, you know, uh slavery in Jamaica and yet there is like two actors of of color in this whole movie. Well, and they're both in, driving in the background. a coach. <laughs> yeah. So it's I I mean I know that that existed in like white people were sold into slavery in pirate times. But it, it it does feel kind of pointed that it's like every character in this movie is like, "Why, hello there, sir." I say. I don't know, it's weird because like she was trying to romance him, right? And then he kind of reciprocates and she is like, oh my god, you're of much lower status than me. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very they're very hot and cold, those two. But it's it's uh it looks like their kind of escape plan is is not gonna work out, but then there's a Spanish pirate attack. Some Spanish pirates attack Port Royal. <laughs> Some pirates ex machina. <laughs> yes, and so they're able to use that as cover to like escape through through the port and like steal one of the Spanish ships. Uh, while it's empty, this whole scene feels very, very much feels like a predecessor to the Black Pearl attacking Port Royal in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Would not surprise me at all if that was, if like this is a reference point for that, because like some of it might just be. I thought about that a lot watching this of like newer pirate movies. I'm like, there's that thing, mm-hmm. but part of that might just be like it's a pirate movie. They're, they all have certain set pieces and like things that happen in a pirate movie, like. It was it was making me think about how I just went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride for the first time recently mm. and thinking about how I didn't expect to get wet in that ride. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the splash and zone. I didn't know that it I, I I just wasn't familiar with the Pirates of the Caribbean as a ride where you have to sit in a on a wet seat. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I have I have never been on the the ride which it feels like a, a an oversight. It's cool. I like I've it. I've been to both Disney parks or both oh, really? American Disney parks. Never been on Pirates of the Caribbean. This is my first time at an American Disney park uh, and I I had to do pirates. Anyway, back to Captain Blood. They're originally trying to escape on a ship that like a they contact a debtor, get a hold of some money and they're mm-hmm. like we're going to buy a ship to all escape on together. That plan falls through when their ship gets blown up in the chaos, and mm-hmm. then they're just like, "Let's just take a, let's just take a Spanish ship." Yeah, they say the boat's been sunk, sunk to the bottom of the briny. <laughs> and so yeah, then they they steal a pirate ship and are like, "We're pirates now. We we are going to write a pirate code and we are going to live as pirates, as and a then, brotherhood of buccaneers." They say indeed. And then there's this like text on screen thing, and it's like, and then they became the best pirates. In, in the world. And it's like, yeah, we couldn't... It would have been nice to maybe see some of that. There's <laughs> like a, a kind of a very brief montage of like sword fights in there. 
Right. But it, it cuts from them, like, deciding to be pirates to them being the best pirates in, like, well, clearly a minute they're the best. They would become the best pirates because they're all righteous, good guys. Right. Who are suave and yeah. they buckle swatches. <laughs> but I, I do think it's, they spend so much time in the first half just in this sort of, like, setting up why these people would be pushed so far to, like, the margins of society that they would decide to be pirates to begin with. But I, I wish there was more of a, like, second act of them actually becoming pirates, I guess. Yeah. Because then it's like, all right, we're now that we're the best pirates, let's have, like, a different movie start. <laughs> Before it does the, the time jump, uh, the colonel, Colonel Bishop, who's the person who, like, had, like, bought all of them at auction. The brutal ruler of the island, as appointed by the king. He, like climbs aboard the ship and are like, oh, like you, you, you've saved us from the, those rascally Spanish pirates. And he's like, thank you for saving all of my money that they stole. And they're like, get out of here. And they throw him <laughs> off the ship. They they initially want to hang him. And then he's like, true. Yeah. But that's too good for him. Throw him off the ship so that he can come back later in the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They pretty they almost say that. Like that's kind of the degree to which they're foreshadowing it. Oh, yeah, and then Errol Flynn says, Desperate men, we go to seek a desperate fortune. <laughs> and then the, the text on screen says, uh, like, off they went. A ship, a handful of men, and a brain. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do, genius blood? Who- I guess that is kind of the thing that seemingly, like, sets Captain Blood apart from the other pirates, is that he, he's a smart pirate. Yeah. Who, he who got a educated. doctorate. Yeah, exactly. Captain Blood, PhD. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sequel. <laughs> and so then it's like, second half of the movie, they're already the best and coolest pirates around. Everyone loves Captain Blood for being I mean, such a good fair, pirate. I mean, to be fair, they're pretty good and cool. Yeah. We pick pick back up in Tortuga, classic pirate location. Uh, Captain Blood is drinking with uh, a French pirate named Lavasseur, played by Basil Rathbone famous for being Sherlock Holmes, amongst other things. Yeah. He plays French very well, I think. I, I like whenever he says Captain Blood, it's like, Captain Blood? I feel like this this character, Lavasseur, feels very... Reminded me a lot of uh, Belloc from Raiders. <laughs> uh, which yeah. I think is probably not a coincidence. Like, it would not surprise me at all if, like... I think both Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan have, like, cited Lucka Curtiz as, like, a guy that inspired Raiders. Like... That was like kind of the vibe they okay. were going for. It's like, yeah. oh, this is like a little bit of like a Marcotis type of thing. And so it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that that was like. And then who's the villain? I don't know. Like a mean French guy. <laughs> He's bothering blood to kind of join up as the two strongest yeah. He's, pirates. He's kind of giving this sort of like, we're not so very different. You and I speech. Like, imagine what we could do together. <laughs> Classic villain speech. And so blood is like. Sure, let's team up. And then, like, within the same sentence, like, regrets it. He's like, this was a mistake. He he almost, like, turns to the camera and was like, shouldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) But in a much more sort of like, oh, what have I done sort of of way. And then immediately, like, you know, it, it flashes forward, you know, maybe a couple months into them being pirate buddies. And Mm -hmm. immediately this guy is too French to <laughs> to be to, to stick to their code of don't don't take ladies as your property. Yeah. Uh hey, right, stop stealing ladies. Lavasseur kidnaps uh Arabella 
and and keeps her on an island. He's like, let all the other prisoners go, but I'm going to keep this one very attractive woman as as my ransom. Captain Blood is like, not having that. So Captain Blood has a whole confrontation with Lavasseur over this, where Captain Blood attacks him with logic first, and then with the sword second. Which the pen should be mightier then. Right. But... He He kind of... In part of his logic attack, he's like, well, if I pay the ransom, then, like, she can come stay with me. And so he, he like, with a bunch of pearls, he buys buys Arabella from Lavasier. And Lavasier is like, how dare you, sir? I'm going to sword fight you. And so they have a sword fight on the beach. Which well, is the he first, also, like, he fight takes, in the He movie. takes an extreme glee in purchasing her. After, oh, yeah, for sure. After she owned him as a slave. Yeah, because right, because at first he's like pretend that pretend that you don't know her, and he like she sees that he's shown up. He's like, oh, I'm a person that I know, Captain Blood is here, the the nice pirate, and then he just like walks past her without looking at her, and it's <laughs> he's really kind of like digging the kind of uh, his superiority in this moment. <laughs> he's he's just lavishing it. <laughs> But so they have a big sort. Him and Lavasier have this big sword fight on the beach, which is pretty fun. Love a good beach sword fight. Fencing. I thought he was going to come back later. Nope. It's well, he like... stabs him too. He kind of dies pretty quickly. I see. I was. And there's some I, blood. I, I was assuming that he wasn't really dead. I'm like, oh, Lavasier is going to come back, and it's like, oh no, no, he's he's just he's done. That's the end. Yeah, I mean, you know, I assume that if you get stabbed in the chest and then you're at like kind of lying down drowning height in in the water then uh you're probably as good as done i think it's maybe sort of a uh maybe my, my modern movie sensibilities i'm like unless someone has their like head chopped off like they're gonna come back in the third right. act you know yeah we've already seen that water doesn't kill people because of the <laughs> the, 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 the dad of 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 uh olivia de Havilland, right which uh, we're going to see him again in one second. So then Captain Blood wants to take uh, Arabella back to Port Royal uh, to like return her there. And the crew was like, we don't want to go back there. Like the entire British Navy's over there and the guy that hates us. Like, and so they, they try to mutiny. But then Captain Blood <laughs> is like so agreeable about it. He's like, yeah, okay, I guess you guys can mutiny. Like you, you have a good point. And they're like, ah, take, we take it back. We like it. We'll go to Port Royal. <laughs> It was it was such a weird moment. He's like reverse psychologying them, pretty much. Like, yeah, doing like a <laughs> yeah, just doing like a oh well. If I'm so if I'm so bad, then uh, go ahead, fine. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, you're not bad. <laughs> We're sorry for mutinying, <laughs> which is yeah, very funny. And then once they get back to Port Royal, though, they see that it's under attack by uh, the French Navy, and they find out that the old mean English king is dead. And there's a new English king that is not as bad and that England is now at war with the French, which is why this is happening. They find out that oceans are now battlefields. And so they, they're like, to arms, we're going to join up with the, the British again. We're going to fight off the, the French Navy. And we get this long extended like battle scene between multiple ships so shooting good. cannons at each other and like swinging Amazing. across on ropes and sword fights and grappling hooks and exploding ships. Oh, it rules. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's all of the stuff that I wanted out of this movie is like packed into the last like 
35 minutes of it. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's so good in that section that I'm like, it's been worth this like very belabored buildup. But it, it 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 leaves off on like the best stuff kind of. Yeah. And then be, because of this, uh, Captain Blood gets uh, elected mayor of Port Royal and gets to shove it in the bad guy's face. Yeah, immediately he's... He's like, I'm going to mayor your niece and also I'm the mayor now. Deal with it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, he I'm going to put my feet on your desk. There's like an emissary from the king there. And he's like, if you defeat the French, then you get to be king of town. And <laughs> that's them's the rules. The guy... What's his name? The the mean guy who's who owned the, them. The Colonel Bishop. Colonel Bishop. He the reason why he's being deposed is because he was out hunting for Captain Blood on mm-hmm. his vengeance quest, and then his his city was attacked while his squad was out trying to find his uh pirate white mm. whale. And so he comes back and he's just like Hey, guess what? You found me, and now I uh, <laughs> I rule your your city. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, the movie just ends as it began with Peter Blood being smug. Uh, well, it ends but... with him, him and Olivia De Havilland both like cheek to cheek, like making smug faces at the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Which is it's cathartic. It's it's fun. It's a really fun yeah. end. Yeah, I do think the first half is like too long, and I wish yeah. there was more time dedicated to them. Like. I wish there wasn't that, like, very stark, like, time jump where it's, yeah. like, they start being pirates and then they're the best. But I think, like, the second half has so much fun stuff in it that it, like, it's it's well worth watching for that. And, I, I mean, there's it's it's there's fun stuff throughout. But, yeah, it, it has a very, I've said this before on this episode, but it's, like, a very, like, old-timey Hollywood yeah. uh, feeling to it. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. That's all yeah. the movies. Oh, great uh, score on this, too. I forgot to mention. Oh. Uh, by um, Korngold, a a notable uh, composer mm. of of film and music. I think that that score, I think, really helps that, that sort of, like, old-timey kind of romantic drama feeling. I'm glad we're getting scores now. That's... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, we're getting into some good territory and... It's it's interesting these er- the early movies that didn't have non diegetic scores, but y- y- you want to have them for a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it helps a lot. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, uh, what was your favorite film that we watched? You know, it might have been Top Hat. I really, yeah. really had a fun time with Top Hat, and though it's not the best of its style of people mm. are playfully mean to each other 30s movie. <laughs> I still love those movies so dearly that uh yeah. number one spot. Uh mine was definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I was really kind of uh very happily surprised at how how good that was. Olivia de Happily over here. <laughs> ah sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh that's about it. Uh, thank you all for watching and listening to uh, this, which is surely to be one of our longer episodes. But oh boy. I think any time that we talk about, you know, we we broke our record with Birth of a Nation, and we had to say a lot about Triumph of the Will also. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's it's true. I mean, that was our first movie, so we probably were a little extra long-winded because we were, like, just getting into it. But... We gotta, though. I mean, like, you know, yeah. it's, it's, There's... it's complex and we need to talk about it. Right. It's it's a movie that I think is unlike the other stuff. I feel like that one we're talking about like much like 
bigger like philosophical ideas almost of like what yeah. what is indoctrination and like how does that work and like how how does the media play into that you know yeah i think we i think we solved the nazi crisis in this uh <laughs> in this episode and uh we can call it a wrap now so uh Thanks. give us a like on on facebook and youtube <laughs> for solving the nazi crisis and uh and and uh that'll be it for this episode uh, uh, uh subscribe and all that jazz and uh i and wish it, in, I wish it involved more punching oh yeah true yeah. we need to uh, uh edit people into triumph of the will just punching <laughs> getting, every getting nazi we'll, we'll just edit, like a, edit in a bunch of clips from indiana jones and hellboy yeah we'll, we'll edit in a bunch of uh like street fighter guys at their, <laughs> put, put them put them next to every single nazi so we have just 50 50 000 nazis and fifty thousand little street animated street fighter guys <laughs> but see now that you've said that now i have to for at least one shot, I have to try that now. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, again, send us a like for uh, defeating the Nazis because that's that's something that we did. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 thanks for listening. Uh, appreciate you all for listening. Come back for 1936. Yeah. And uh, Glenn, speaking of 1936, I'll see you next year. See you next year. <laughs>